How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I don't know why Todd's Arnold impression makes him sound man- mentally handicapped. Because <laughs> it sounds like he's being or he's being electrocuted in slow motion. Or just somebody <laughs> somebody has stuck something no. up, up his butt without him knowing it was gonna happen. <laughs> Imagine, uh, imagine Arnold like feeding one of his children, but doing like "Here comes the airplane!" Like "Here comes the airplane!" Yeah. Have, you ever, have you ever heard Arnold Schwarzenegger actually talk? <laughs> uh, well, we promised we were going to jump into these episodes. So, well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We're just three guys. If this is your first time listening, we're just three guys who have been lifelong friends. And we read way too much shit about movies. And we love talking about them, especially the people behind the movies, the stories behind them, the directors, the writers, all that stuff. So that's what we do here. And I'm one of your hosts that does that. I'm Gary Horn. Hey, and I'm co-host Justin Bishop. And I'm writer, comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis, a.k.a. the Toddinator. Welcome to this, our first chapter in our look at the unsinkable visionary James Cameron, the man of tomorrow. Today, we'll discuss The Boss versus The Juice, why receptionists fear Lance Henriksen, and what movie made Jimmy Cameroon puke. I don't think anyone's ever called you the Toddinator, Todd. I'll be honest. You know, I'm trying to get it going, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll try. We'll, we'll just start to refer to you as the Toddinator from here on out. And to be fair, all people should just naturally fear Lance Henriksen. That, yeah, that's true. very true. Yeah. I bet yeah. he's very nice, actually. <laughs> oh, he seems nice. I'm just saying you should Scary have a voice. Health. Bears are useful, but you should have a healthy fear of them. I wouldn't <laughs> ever say that I've met a nice bear. I mean, no. I haven't gotten close enough to one. I don't know. Winnie the Pooh. Say Winnie the Pooh until his horror movie comes until out. Until that blood money <laughs> comes out. Oh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's get into the uh, story of James Cameron. So for the last uh, few series on this show, you know, we covered filmmakers who I think could more easily be considered cult filmmakers. You know, when we describe this show, we say that it's an exploration of uh, the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. Uh, and a lot of the ones that we've talked about have been in the specifically the cult category. I think even though some of these filmmakers have had some big hits, uh, they've primarily kind of existed on the fringes of Hollywood with their hits feeling more like the exceptions than the rules Hmm. in their career. These are cult filmmakers who their sensibilities sometimes on occasion just happen to click with what audiences want. You've got guys like David Cronenberg. uh, We've got filmmakers like the Wachowskis, Paul Verhoeven. All of these folks had, they had big hits but none of them ever felt like they were kind of like selling out to get those hits. Mm. Uh, Sometimes that meant that they would make films like let's say Showgirls or Cloud Atlas or even Videodrome that just didn't connect with audiences. Uh, But one thing that all of these filmmakers that we've discussed have in common is that they never compromise their vision as artists. 
If that vision happens to translate into solid box office numbers, that's all the better. But these are folks that are going to make the movies that they want to make regardless. And, and now we've talked about filmmakers in the past who have had to work begrudgingly within the studio system. I'm specifically thinking of Toby Hooper and Dan O'Bannon uh, when we talked about them. Uh, but a lot of these folks, they, they just, they're making the movies they want to make. And sometimes for whatever reason, it just clicks with the zeitgeist. So for this series that we're starting on, on this episode, this new series that we're going to be going through for the next couple of months, we're going to be exploring the films of James Cameron, a filmmaker whose roots lie firmly within the B-movie and genre film worlds, and a guy who absolutely does not compromise on what he wants to do, no matter if anyone tells him that his ideas are crazy, which, as we will get into, happens quite a lot. Uh, this is a guy who's always going to make the movie he wants to make, naysayers be damned. But the big difference between Cameron and some of these other filmmakers is that his vision almost always translates into box office success. He's still making the movies he wants to make, but... People just want to go see them. Two of the movies that we're going to be talking about became the highest grossing movies of all time at the time of their release. Uh, somehow, James Cameron has tapped into the zeitgeist in a way that very few filmmakers can claim. And it's honestly, if we're being honest, and I always try to be. We try uh, to be honest here. <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not fair. Because <laughs> there's a lot of things that make you think this guy is a snob, besides just the reputation of some that he gets from some people, besides it seeming like for whatever reason, he's built like a whole mythology around himself, uh, that he seems like he's some kind of weird Tony Stark playboy uh, is a motorcycle riding gearhead. He goes deep sea diving in spots nobody's ever seen. He's before. a man's man. Yeah, he's playing with guns <laughs> in the desert. Uh, he's supremely intelligent, and then somehow, some way, he still is a really great storyteller yeah. and uh, makes good movies. And he's it's just a not fucking fair. He's a complex, complex man. But what is it about James Cameron that allows him to do this? What is it about his films that cause audiences to just flock to them sometimes over and over and over again, as we saw, especially with uh, with Titanic and when it came out in 1997. Uh, and, and then some members of the audience even going into a deep depression because they can't physically live within the fictional worlds that he's created. Uh, that is something we'll talk about at the end of this series, I'm sure. Wow. Uh, so to begin to answer these questions, though, we've got to go back to the beginning, to Cameron's first major film, his first, I would say, official film that he directed, 1984's The Terminator. In the 21st century... A weapon will be invented like no other. This weapon will be powerful, versatile, and indestructible. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. It will feel no pity, no remorse, no pain, no fear. It will have only one purpose, to return to the present and prevent the future. This weapon will be called the Terminator. You're dead, honey. What day is it? The date? 12th May, Thursday. What year? I'm here to help you. I'm Reese, DN38416, assigned to protect you. You've been targeted for termination. What is it with me? Why me? Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator. Your future is in its hands. Dum, 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 dum. It's a good song. 
It is. It's, 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 that, that, the, that the, music, man. Uh, it's so good. That intro music and even the sweet song that yeah. plays, you know, uh-huh. just the love making song is mm-hmm. just nice. It's yeah. just a, it's a it's a great score, but I'm sure we'll talk about it. We if will we, yeah. if we do our job. We will discuss <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> so we're actually going to go back a little bit further than 1984. Uh, because this is the first episode in this series, as we like to do on these series. Uh, if it's the first time we've talked about a filmmaker, we really like to get into their background, which makes these first episodes a little bit longer than, than the typical episode sometimes. But we feel that the, if, if you're going to study the films of James Cameron, you need, you need to know a little bit about who James Cameron is we as leave, a person. We leave no stone unturned. Yeah, well, and, I by, mean, and by we, I mean Justin. Yeah, I mean <laughs> there are some stones that I leave unturned, but mostly, uh, mostly I try to peek under them. So our st- <laughs> our story here starts in Ontario in 1954, where James Francis Cameron was born, uh, the son of an electrical engineer and an artist. Uh, Cameron was an incredibly intelligent and precocious child who had his father's mind for science, but his mother's passion and talent for the arts. So James was the oldest of five siblings. He and his closest brother, Mike, would often tinker and experiment. They'd build go-karts and tree houses. They're always like doing stuff. They would use erector sets to build these complex Rube Goldberg machines. Nice. Uh, yeah, it, and it would also, should also be mo- noted that Mike, uh, we might talk about him in further episodes because Mike Cameron would follow his father's footsteps and become an engineer, and he actually helped to create some of the filmmaking and diving technologies that James would later use on The Abyss and Titanic and his underwater documentaries. And at the same time as he was kind of exploring his technical side, Cameron was also exploring his artistic side. He loved to draw as a kid. He was always sketching. He'd always have a sketchbook on him. Uh, He would always win the local design and art contest in his little town there in Ontario. Uh, He was maybe a little bit of an overachiever, uh, maybe a little too smart for his own good at times. Uh, He was a very omnivorous reader, I think is the best way to say it. That's not what my notes say. So that's, I apologize for the pause. But as I was thinking about the kind of things that he was into, like he's especially into uh, comic books. He's a big fan of Spider-Man, which I think is something that might come up later on in the series because he very nearly directed a Spider-Man movie. I was wondering, man, that that would be really cool. Yeah, (laughs) I I wonder, I wonder what Spider-Man he's a fan of, if it was like Romita or well, he was he was growing up, and this would have been probably the '60s. So, like, yeah, so maybe Dicko or yeah, early, um, early Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, he was a big fan of science fiction writers, guys like Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, Ray Radbury, Kurt Vonnegut. These were all writers that he just devoured their works. He loved it. And Cameron was intelligent enough to be able to skip two grades in elementary school. When I say that he's a little too too smart for his own good, that was a little bit part of it because when he arrived in high school, he was bullied because. One, he was smaller than everyone else. Every you, You've got 15 and 16-year-olds, and he's 12 years old in high school, so he's smaller than everyone else. And uh, he was smarter than everyone else. Bullies don't like that. So uh, he would get bullied because of that. But he, he won, like, every academic prize that the school gave out for his grade until later on he decided to stop trying quite as hard because he wanted to, I think, stop getting stuffed into lockers. So he, he was still very smart, but he's like, I'm going to stop trying to win all this stuff So because I'm tired of getting my – I'm tired of getting a swirly. But that's where he would get his passion for, for deep-sea deep diving yeah, is, is all the swirlies. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's important. <laughs> I don't – probably also helped that he grew up to be like six foot four or whatever he is. He's a very tall man. So once he had that growth spurt, I think he was probably fine. Uh, (laughs) So the town that Cameron grew up in 
in Canada. It was hundreds of miles from the nearest ocean. He had never actually visited the coast. He had never so much as stuck a toe in the ocean, but he did become obsessed with Jacques Cousteau's underwater documentaries, an obsession that would fuel him through his entire career. And he eventually convinced his parents to en- let him enroll in a scuba diving class at the YMCA in Buffalo, because he, he's uh, near Niagara Falls, so he's not far over the American border. He's able to go to Buffalo. Uh, And it was there at the YMCA that he learned military style diving. So as he reached his teenage years, you know, as most teenagers do, he didn't know what he wanted to do as a career. Uh, What teenagers do? I'm 40 years old. I don't fucking know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. (laughs) Hopefully podcast. I'm going to be 60 (laughs) years old. Nobody's going to be listening because podcasts will only be old people by then. (laughs) I don't know what the youth will be listening to. I yeah, it's tough. I mean, I was thinking about this while I was reading about Cameron and just like, oh yeah, I liked I had I had a couple of Jacques Cousteau books that were like photo books, you know, just like all of this stuff. And I loved looking at those as a kid. I love underwater stuff. Uh some of all the Reddits I follow are a lot or a lot of them are about weird underwater stuff. And I'm like, wow. I could have done something with that, I suppose, but instead I became a lazy piece of shit. Well, I think that's that's the thing about about guys like Shane Black and Cameron who like, you know, how we talked about Shane Black uh, sitting around reading mystery novels all day long. So Cameron's obsessed with sci-fi classics and these ace paperback novels, Harlan Ellison, whatever, uh, who gets a credit in Terminator. You know, it's it's like they did something with it, though. Mm. Yeah, Cameron's the kind of guy who like if he gets really into something, he's going to pursue it. You know, and he got really, he got, he got into the idea of deep sea diving, doesn't live anywhere near an ocean. And he still took the initiative to learn how to dive, (laughs) like by going to the YMCA. I mean, that tells you a lot, I think, about his personality. So he's a teenager at this point. He's trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do with my life. He's very interested in science. He's very into science. He's also very into art. And he wasn't sure how the two could coexist in a career because there aren't a lot of careers that encompass both of those things. And then in 1968, he had an epiphany while watching a movie called 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's classic, possibly responsible for more filmmakers' careers than any other movie of all time. Maybe Star Wars is up there, but I would say that Star Wars wouldn't exist without 2001. So I'm going to say 2001 may be the most influential film on future filmmakers' Of all time, especially it, genre filmmakers. Yeah. And it still looks great. It, it's dude. Yeah. I saw it on IMAX a couple of years ago and it was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. It was pretty yeah, fantastic yeah. to see that. And, and to piggyback on what you're saying, I mean, in an interview I was reading with Cameron, he, he, he specifically, uh, I think talking about this movie was saying that I always wanted to be a raconteur, a storyteller. I knew that I wanted to create visually and produce images. I was always doing both. I'd be writing stories, painting, looking for a way to mesh them together. Comics are a fusion of those two things. So it seemed like a natural thing for me that that would be what I'd do. But I've been going to movies like a rabid maniac. And at a certain point, seeing them, I said, wait a minute. All of this is what a movie is. It's a visual medium with a narrative intent. He would always um, create illustrations of stories that he would be reading or even stuff that he was writing as a kid. And he would do them like, because he was a comic book fan, so he would do them as a comic book. And at at some point, he did realize that the way he was composing his drawings were very cinematic. Uh, And if you you can see some of these online, Uh, I've been watching the James Cameron Masterclass, and he shows some of them on there, uh, where he shows some of these images that he was drawing, and they're they're framed almost more like a movie than like a traditional comic book. It's like that that was just something that inherently was almost natural to him. He just didn't know it at the time. So he goes to see 2001 A Space Odyssey and he is 
absolutely stunned by the film. He actually says that as soon as the film was over, he ran outside of the theater and just puked everywhere. Uh, <laughs> not because the movie wasn't good. It was because he had never been that immersed in a movie in that final scene you know, the, or the mm. final sequence, the, the star child sequence, you know, kind of gave him vertigo. Yeah. Cause he'd never experienced anything like that on, on a big screen before. And he, yeah. So he came out and just puked everywhere. Uh, but then he saw the movie many more times. He just kept going back to it. He knew that this film was intelligent and beautiful and like, just unlike anything he had ever seen. And all of a sudden watching 2001, he's like, I knew that this is what I had to do. I've got to make movies, but he didn't think of himself as a director. That was never in his mind at this time. Uh, he wanted to be the guy who made the special effects, which that does fit in with his love, you know, his love of both science and art. It makes sense. He's going to be the guy that builds the spaceships. He's also studying 2001 A Space Odyssey. He, he says that it was one of the first books he ever had or one of the first books he ever even saw that was about the making of a film was one that he picked up about the making of 2001 a space odyssey. And he would like study it like crazy. Mm. So they, he, he starts studying that he start he's trying to figure out how Kubrick does, how he pulls off some of the effects. Cause some of the effects in that film were, had never been done before, even though we had this making of book, it's not as detailed as like some of the stuff that we now have access to where it really right. breaks it down. Yeah. Uh, Cause Kubrick's doing stuff in this movie that is like, nobody's done it. So Without that documentation, it's like him in his mind trying to figure out how the hell did this happen. <laughs> you know? mm. So he decides he's going to start making some movies. Uh, him and his buddy get a hold of a Super 8 camera. I think it was his buddy's dad's camera. This is the same story that at, so many filmmakers of this era have. You know, uh, guys like Steven Spielberg, you know, everyone picked up their dad's super eight camera. I was just thinking, I was like, <laughs> Spielberg has a similar story, doesn't he? Yeah. So, they, and they start, they start making their own little DIY sci-fi movies, building their own models and things like that. Cameron's about 16 years old or so at this point, Cameron's father got a promotion. It was one that would actually move them from their small town near, near Niagara Falls in Canada, all the way to orange County, California. And when Cameron heard the news, he was like, can we leave today? He's ready to go, not because he didn't like Canada, because he wants to be close to Hollywood. Orange County, he's going to be 30 miles from Hollywood, where all these movies that he loves are being made. So they move out to California. Uh, he finishes up high school. Then in the early 70s, Cameron attends Fullerton College. Uh, he's, he's going to college, which is a little like community college there in Orange County. Uh, and all, at the same time, while he's going to college, he's working on all his creative stuff on the side he's writing sci-fi stories he's drawing he's painting sometimes he's got little side jobs where he's like a sign painter and things like that you know things that allow him to use his art and then while he's in college he starts dating a woman named sharon williams she's about a year younger than him another college student there at fullerton uh, she introduced him to a guy named bill wisher bill wisher was a little bit younger like uh, than them a couple years but he was another guy who was very interested in getting into filmmaking so they kind of become buddies, like film nerd buddies, like us, guys that just like they hang out and they talk about movies. They could have done a podcast, but pfft, well, they they made multi billion dollar movies. Yeah, <laughs> if that's how you measure success, <laughs> guarantee you, Cameron, uh, plenty of times has thought, I wish I had recorded myself talking about this. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody Instead will ever know what it. I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. So the two of them are friends. They they meet another Fullerton College student named Randall. Frakes, 
Uh, he's a little, he's a, a year or so older than Cameron. I think he's another big fan of sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, and Frakes read some of Cameron's sci-fi stories and he's like, man, you're a really good science fiction writer. Cameron was not writing these as movies. He was just writing like short stories, sci-fi short stories, like the stuff he drew up, grew up uh, reading. But Frakes pushed him to write screenplays to turn some of these stories into screenplays because he could see his talent. It was something that Cameron had never really thought about, but he took the suggestion of his friend and he started kind of working some of these stories into screenplays. He had, he had kind of gotten out of his sci-fi stuff, like going into college. I don't know, maybe it was uh, Swirlies in a Toilet or something, but he was like, well, I got to get more focused back on the real world at a certain point and like maybe I get a different perspective on things. But then he said the more time he spent day to day, he realized that sci-fi writers actually had the best perspective on life. According to him, he said that uh, everybody else is mired in these specifics of day to day and sci-fi writers just have so much more visionary ideas. So at this time, Cameron, you know, he's finishing up college. He uh, he's working a variety of blue collar jobs at the time. He is a typical broke college student you know he's working as a janitor a truck driver a gas station attendant where he's you know the guy pumping your gas uh, but at night he's always writing he's painting and he's hanging out with frakes and wisher and they're always talking about movies you know after work they'd go and meet at a diner have some coffee have some pie and talk about movies all night long then on the weekends he would go to the library at the university of southern california uh, he wasn't a student there. Again, he's going to a little community college, but he'd go and hang out in the library and he would photocopy graduate students' papers on filmmaking techniques, like especially like really esoteric filmmaking techniques that you couldn't learn in a, a book that you bought at the store about the making of 2001. You know, he's mm. trying to get more into like the very technical stuff. He, what he's doing is he's teaching himself visual effects at one of the country's top film schools without ever attending a class and without ever meeting a professor. He's just doing teaching himself on the weekends. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's great. So around this time, uh, Cameron and Sharon Williams, they get married. They would be married for a little while, but as we'll get into, most of his marriages don't last very long. (laughs) So, but they do get married at this time. And it was around the time that they got married, late seventies, that another science fiction movie came out in theaters. And Cameron once again had kind of an epiphany. The year is 1977. So as you can probably Uh... guess, that movie is Star Wars. He sees Star Wars, and more importantly, he sees the success of Star Wars. Like, science fiction is very, very much in the pop culture at this Mm. point. Mm -hmm. So, Cameron, Frakes, and Wisher, they decide, we're going to make our own movie, our own sci-fi epic. So, they they start working on this. It's a a little film called Xenogenesis. Gary, you got a chance to watch this, right? I did. And I'm, and I'm going to uh, just, just to throw it in here. We talked about it a little before we started hitting record, but we're working on the YouTube. Uh, so all the episodes are going to be there, but also uh, finding people seem to be lax with trailers and certain things. So like Xenogenesis is one I think I'd like to get thrown up on our YouTube if we can. So maybe by the time you're listening to this, it'll be there. It's, it's pretty fucking impressive, actually. It like it's uh, especially I mean, even you know, like apps today can help you make a lot of effects, but to think about it even in that way. But even if it was made today. It's still pretty damned impressive. It's pretty like, damn impressive. Yeah. I mean, it, this is a little, it's only uh, 12 minutes long or so. So the way that they went about doing this, they, of course, they wrote the script together, the three of them. Uh, the money came from a friend of a friend's dad who was an accountant for a bunch of Orange County dentists who were looking for somewhere to invest their money. Uh, Cameron, he brought some of his paintings to the group uh, to kind of show him his visual talent, show him that, you know, that he is an artist that can help create this kind of stuff. He pitched the idea of the film to this group 
group of dentists, and he walked away with about $30,000 to create a scene from the film. Uh, they, the the $30,000 was just to create like basically a single sequence from the film that they could sh- show to these investors to kind of show them what they can do. Mm. Uh, this still gets done now. People will make a, a proof of concept. They'll make a trailer, and then they'll take that to investors to show, hey, we've got chops to do a full film. This yeah. is what it's going to look like. Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert did pretty much the exact same thing for Evil Dead. In fact, I think, yeah. in fact, I think they went to dentists. <laughs> yeah. The agreement was that they would, they'd show this footage. If it looked good, maybe there'd be some more money to turn it into a full-length feature. There, and it's to, to be fair, I mean, we should just really spend some time just giving the dentist credit since we buried them on the little shop of horrors episode. Uh, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> well, that, was, that was one specific dentist, okay? <laughs> had some, some weird stuff going on in his life. They also, they also helped launch James Cameron's career in a way, yeah. yeah and yeah, sure. it, I mean, it is a well known fact that nobody balls harder than a dentist. Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's well known. It's oh, wow. it's in it's the subtext of every hip hop song <laughs> for the last fifteen to twenty years. Honestly. I mean, you jest, but I mean, a major factor in hip hop artists are the grills that they sport. Oh, wow. Hey, so, you, know, you can't come get together there without the dentist. So, no. not a lot of love given to dentists. They deserve it. Well, so they're starting to work on this film, and and they had not really decided like, hey, you're going to be the director. I'm going to be this guy. I'm you know, whatever. They, they were going to make this movie together, but James Cameron being James Cameron, he kind of took charge, took over and essentially became the film's unofficial director. And the film is, you know, it is very impressive for, I mean, for what it is, it's not going to blow your socks off if you don't know the context, I don't think of, of what it is, but for three guys who had never made a movie before and had never attended film school, they're making a movie, a, and, and not just any short film, but a, a high-concept science fiction film. And every technique that they use, they basically learned from reading books. It's it, wild. It's a 12-minute thing, but it's, it's, I mean, it's essentially a giant robot fight, which is cool enough on its own. It is essentially the HK from Terminator it versus is. Ripley from Aliens, because it's a girl in like a... That's a great in, point. In, in, in the power loader. Yeah, he, the, the the robots, the giant robots that are the bad guys in Exogenesis or Xenogenesis look very, very much like the HKs from Terminator. Nice. That's true. And I never thought about the alien side of it, but that's that's 100 percent true. There's the girl in the in the she's in a like power a, loader. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and instead of fighting the alien queen, she's fighting a, a Terminator hunter killer is yeah. what she's doing. Yeah. Wow. Like yeah. He, so these dentists, they they never signed on for a full-length version of the film. I'm not really sure why. Maybe they just, I don't know. Maybe they got cold feet. Because uh, the footage, as we mentioned, is pretty good. But the footage, at least it was there. They had that in their possession. So that gave James Cameron a pretty great demo reel, something he could show to people to prove that he knew how to build models, how to create special effects, how to shoot in 35 millimeter with a special effects camera. Uh, Basically, this is his resume now, you know, because he didn't have anything else. He hadn't made anything else. Uh, So he takes this footage to Roger Corman's New World Pictures, who happened to be doing their own riff on Star Wars, a film called Battle Beyond the Stars. And yeah, that that does mean that once again, we've arrived... At Roger Corman, as as often happens on these episodes. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, the six degrees of Roger Corman. The I was going to say, it was like Kevin Bacon gets all that love, but really <laughs> Roger Corman's like, he really he, is. He's man. in yeah. everything. 
It yeah. can be, you can go less than six degrees on most filmmakers and find your way to Roger Corman. Even on films that he did, wasn't technically involved with, he is somewhere in the story. <laughs> like, it's, it's wild. For the last 60 years. Yeah, very, very <laughs> prolific. Absolutely. Yeah. So Corman made a career out of making genre films, B-movies. But what happened is after Jaws and Star Wars, he saw Hollywood coming for his bread and butter. They were all of a sudden Hollywood is making the kinds of movies that he had always made, but they're doing it with a bigger budget. Corman knew that he had to throw everything at this movie that he was making. Uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. He knew that this was a big deal. Like if I'm going to compete with the big boys, I got to I got to spend more than the like $15,000 that I spent on Little Shop of Horrors or whatever it was. You know? right, right. Uh, so Battle Beyond the Stars at $2 million would be Corman's most expensive production to date ever. Uh, which is still really low, even in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, $2 million for a science fiction film is incredibly low. One of the ways that he had to cut corners to save a little bit of money was that instead of hiring an outside special effects team, he simply created his own effects department. He had a TV effects supervisor named Chuck Comiskey running the whole thing. Uh, and it was Comiskey for whom Cameron actually screened that Xenogenesis footage. He got, the, he got the job on the spot, basically. He showed it to this guy, hey, this is what I can do. Boom, you're hired. We need somebody who can do that. So they had their they had a little model shop in a warehouse. Uh, that's where Cameron would, would be working because he is, he is specifically working on special effects here. Uh, and it was at that model shop that he first met a young woman named Gail Ann Hurd. Uh, so Hurd was, at the time, she was Corman's assistant. Uh, now, in Corman speak, assistant that doesn't mean she was his secretary as as many jobs go on the set of a corman film uh you you're doing a lot more than your your title might indicate oh yeah <laughs> so she's she's doing she's making offers to agents she's scouting locations she's prepping marketing materials and one one part of her job was she would keep corman up to date on his technical staff which is what brought her to the new world model shop she was there you know kind of as corman's liaison to see how things were going. She meets Cameron. He, he kind of, you know, greets her at the door uh, and he gives her the grand tour of the model shop as if he's in charge of the place. Uh, despite the fact that he'd <laughs> only been working there for a couple of days. This was a serendipitous meeting, uh, the details of which we'll get into later on in our story. But Gail Ann Hurd is a big part of James Cameron's story, as we'll, as we'll discuss. So when Cameron got hired onto this movie, most of the spaceships for Battle Beyond the Stars had already been designed. Uh, except for one, which was the hero ship. Because uh, as you mentioned before, it does have a, a woman's voice. Uh, almost like the way that Star Trek, you know, the computer has has a woman's voice. Oh, yeah. Um, but she's a little less robot-y. I don't know. She, it just <laughs> no, like she's, a, she's even sassy. So she's yeah, got like yeah. her own attitude and yeah. everything. So anyway, they needed, a, they needed the spaceship. So Corman, he held basically an art contest, a design contest between all of his staff. Uh, remember, James Cameron always wins these contests when he's growing up, so he easily won. Uh, and all of a sudden, he was in charge of designing and building the film's main spaceship on his first job on a movie ever. His his <laughs> his basic suggestion, by the way, was that since it had a woman's voice, he was like, "Why don't we give the ship tits?" That was well, yeah. That was that was the thing. <laughs> well, that, when Corman was looking at all the paintings that all the different designers had come up with, he comes up to Cameron's and he's like, what is this? And Cameron says, it's a spaceship with tits. He says, all right, I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> and if you look at it, if you watch this movie, 
it 100% is a spaceship with tits. I mean, that's what it looks like. The <laughs> bottom of the ship have these two like round things that practically make no sense at all, but it, it got him the job, you know? Uh, hey. So oh, at certain angles, way, it also looks like that dude from Star Wars who says, uh, it's a trap. Yeah, I guess it kind of does. <laughs> Upside down, maybe a little. Bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Cameron, as we've already said, was a natural leader, and Does that know given... what tits look like? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're thinking of the the devil from a little Nikki, is what you're thinking of. <laughs> Not the devil, but the demon guy with the tits on his head. <laughs> so where was I? <laughs> so as we as we've said, uh, Cameron's kind of a natural leader. So when he gets this job. He's given that the opportunity to be in charge of something. He that kind of emboldens him uh, because Cameron, you know, we're going to say a lot about about him as a person throughout this series. Some good, some bad, but he is confident. I think we can say. Mm-hmm. So the next time he sees Corman, remember he's still the new guy. He explains to Corman that there's a fatal flaw that he had discovered in the production. You know, he's looking at, over everything, how they're going to be doing this scene and this scene. And he's like, there's no way to really put the actors inside of their model environment because they're building models for, you know, the alien planets and things like that. And there's no way to have your actors within that miniature environment in a realistic way. But Cameron had a solution. And this solution is one that goes back to all of his time studying Kubrick's 2001. It's a technique called front projection so remember he had he had spent his youth kind of obsessively reading up on the making of that film and he had spent the last decade it's been about a decade since he saw that movie trying to figure out how Kubrick pulled off the trick of putting his his actors into the film's environments because the way it looked was not like they're they don't look like they're on like a set like a a Star Wars set that very clearly looks like a set or a Star Trek set is really Mm. what I should say like the you know the OG Star Trek they're charming, but you can tell that they're on a set that's made to look like a planet. You know, Kubrick's right. doing something else. So if you're not familiar with the technique of front projection, you guys probably know what rear projection is. Rear projection, I mean, it's still is going to get, it gets used on the Terminator, but rear projection is basically, you've got your actors in front of a screen. There's been footage shot that is projected from the back of the screen. Pretty mm-hmm. easy, right? They're standing in front of a, a projection. Front projection is a little bit differently. Front projection, they're still standing in front of a screen, uh, but the, the footage is actually projected onto the actors and the screen. So it's coming from the front, from where the cameras are, right? Or actually from a projector near the cameras. And the way that they that they do it is the screen, they're usually using scotch light or something like that, which is like this highly reflective material. It's what movie screens are made out of. Mm. Has, has little, um, little tiny minuscule microscopic bits of glass in it that make it highly, highly reflective. So they're projecting this footage onto the actor and the screen, but it's kind of a dim projection. So you don't see it on the actor, but the screen is so highly reflective that it basically the light bounces off of that screen and back into the camera so that's how he pulled that off that's how kubrick pulled that off so he brings this technique to roger corman and all of a sudden cameron finds himself in charge of something else new world pictures brand new front screen projection department (laughs) that they created just for this movie so already he's just he's been working in the film business professionally for a few weeks and already he's been given two promotions. That's awesome. <laughs> and I think the big thing here to take away, if we do happen to have any younger listeners out there, um, you know, who want to pursue this crazy dream of the entertainment industry, 
I think the big takeaway from this is don't wait and don't wait, don't wait for permission. Just go ahead and jump in and do what you can to make, to make that. As long as it's legal. Yeah. As long as it's legal. (laughs) Although they picked up some shots on, uh, on the Terminator without a permit, the gorilla style. So right. As long as you're not hurting anybody in this. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So anyway, it's not gonna, it wouldn't be long before Gail Ann Hurd was also promoted. Uh, she's now not only Roger Corman's uh, assistant, but she is the film's assistant production manager. So she's been given a lot more responsibility as well. And she noticed that the film's art director was moving awfully slow. They, they had hired somebody at, you know, at the suggestion of, you know, Warner Brothers or somebody. They, they, had, they had hired this veteran art director. Well, this veteran art director is not work, used to working on a Roger Corman time frame. You know, so he's going very slow for the type of movie that they're making. Roger Corman movies are made quick. You know, they got to get these out and cash in before people stop caring about a Star Wars ripoff, right? Right. So, <laughs> Gail and her notices they're going kind of slow. Things aren't getting done. Sets aren't getting built as quickly as they need to be. And the guy gets fired. And uh, guess who gets the job? Uh, Promotion uh, number three. Okay. (laughs) Promotion number three for James Cameron. So he's moving up the ladder pretty quickly for a guy who has literally no experience in the business. He's just got the right mentality for it. You know, I was reading an interview with him about um, this time period. And he talked about just, uh, well, a quote, he said, I worked on Battle Beyond the Stars on everything from special effects to production design to a little bit of second unit to post-production as a matte artist. I had five credits on that movie. The advantage of working at this level in film is that you're not risking your whole career. You can roll the dice. You can put the pedal to the floor. You develop a gonzo mentality. Once you're within a more formal structure, you've got to back off from that and learn to delegate responsibility, but not here. As you mentioned, you know, after Battle Beyond the Stars, Cameron's bouncing around a bunch of other projects, working on special effects and designs, including, uh, I think you mentioned it, but John Carpenter's Escape from New York. He did a lot of the special effects on that. That was a, a perfect project for his sensibilities i think his next project with corman was 1981's galaxy of terror so this was corman's answer to ridley scott's alien in much the same way that battle beyond the stars was made to cash in on the success of star wars as the production designer on galaxy of terror one of cameron's employees was a young texan named bill paxton uh bill paxton at the time was an aspiring actor he was looking for a night job he could work because he wanted to keep his days open for auditions. He, he meets Cameron. Cameron immediately gives him a job because he's got a set that needs to be built. So Bill Paxton's first job on a film set is painting painting sets for James Cameron. Uh, but awesome. the, two, the two hit it off. Like they, they really hit it off. They became fast friends, lifelong friends. Uh, and of course, we as we know, Paxton's going to pop up in almost everything that Cameron does after this. Yeah. Real quick, Gary, did, you had a chance to watch a couple of of these movies, right? You watched Battle Beyond the Stars. I watched all of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah. I was Battle Beyond say, the Stars is pretty fun. I mean, it's it's goofy, but it's uh, it looks surprisingly good for a you know cheap little two million dollar Star Wars ripoff by Roger Corman. Yeah, I was going to mention that uh, eventually that yeah we we're, we're skipping through these movies and you got to kind of do that because there's so much to talk about. But these movies are actually kind of cool to watch if you yeah. go back. I'd never even heard of Battle Beyond the Stars or Galaxy of Terror, honestly, before this. And uh, Battle Beyond the Stars looks pretty freaking good. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's all right. It's cheesy, but it's it's like it's it's a it's a good looking movie and a fun, you know, for somebody, especially our age. It's just like a fun little sci fi movie 
and uh galaxy of terrors actually got some wicked shit in it and yeah uh, it's 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 a lot of fun to watch i mean it, it's it, it falls apart towards the end i mean i don't think it's like some like great fantastic movie or anything necessarily but it, it's you'd be surprised how good some of this stuff looks yeah i mean battle beyond the stars like you know it is very much like a cheap b movie but a, but a good a good b movie like it's silly it's goofy it's corny but it's got a lot of fun ideas you know it was written by john sales who you know he, he john sales would end up being an indie darling you know as a writer director later on but he started out making b movies he, he wrote alligator which is a great one of his great early films uh jimmy t uh, murakami was the credited director on battle beyond the stars although roger corman did some stuff on it too but murakami was one of actually the animation directors on heavy metal uh, oh, okay he, he did the wraparound piece the wraparound piece where the 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 car like yeah, lands you know yeah he, he directed that part oh, uh cool. you've, but you've got john saxon in there john saxon anytime john saxon shows up in one of these movies it's always a good time uh he's he's a lot of fun he's basically the darth vader character essentially but uh sybil danning just like b-movie royalty in this movie and the guy who played uh, john boy walton and the Waltons is the is your Luke Skywalker type character, but uh, it's it's a fun movie. I mean, it's uh, I think I watched it on Tubi or, or or Amazon Prime or something. It's very easy to find. So if if you want to really get into early James Cameron stuff, check it out. But be pay special attention to the special effects because they are they do look really good for uh, a sci fi movie of that of that budget. So Galaxy of Terror. Moving back onto that, you know James Cameron, as he does, he he pushes himself into positions of power not like aggressively just like i know i can do this job better than other people he's like i said very confident mm-hmm. so on galaxy of terror he convinced corman that he should be the film's second unit director corman agreed on the spot uh, which officially began james cameron's career as a film director that was the first thing he, he i think he did a couple of second unit shots on battle beyond the stars but he wasn't credited he's credited as a second unit director on galaxy of terror yeah and kind uh, of that quote i, I gave earlier like he, he kind of had uh, like he, he says like he had enough of the way things were being lit uh and this one he was kind of getting frustrated with that he felt like the crew wasn't getting enough footage uh so he convinced corman and then started shooting all kinds of cool stuff arguably some of the most cool shit in the movie yeah, um, yeah, a lot of the like gross <laughs> stuff. There's a great story about him w- w- doing an effect with mealworms. Did you read about that, Gary? Yeah, I mean it's the uh, it's the scene where Sid Haig. I mean, where his arm gets watching this. Up. Yeah, and I was <laughs> or like, he chops his own arm off. I believe I was like within like a certain span of time, Sid Haig's severed arm throws a crystal ninja star into his old chest, and then a woman gets raped by uh, a giant twenty foot worm or something. Yeah, uh, it's like, <laughs> this this movie's pretty wild but it's yeah. wild <laughs> they, they uh, discover sid Haig's severed arm and it's got worms all over it and it's you know supposed to be like rotting basically but when they were filming it nothing was happening with the worms so we finally got mealworms thinking that they would do better but it still didn't do it but he came up with this idea of basically like running like an electrical wire or something underneath it and it would send like a little electrical current into the prosthetic arm well they, they, they ended the up worms. using like well, they ended up having to use like a goo, like some sort of goo to to get the electricity to run through it, I think. So they yeah, had to like yeah. put the goo on top of the worms. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. it made them start bouncing around. So yeah. it looks good when they find the uh, Sid Higgs dead arm. Yeah, because they, they, you know, it was supposed to be maggots. You can't just go find maggots. So he had, had to buy mealworms and they found out that mealworms 
when you put them on something, just kind of lay there. <laughs> so he needed them <laughs> wriggling around. So he figured out a way to do it. I mean, that that was his job as a special effects director on it. Uh, Galaxy of Terror, though, is fucking awesome. <laughs> I'm just going to say <laughs> it is awesome. I would I mean, it is very much again, very much a cheesy B movie, but it is super fun. Uh, it's super weird. Uh, like like Gary said, it's got Sid Hagen. It's got Robert England in it. You know, uh, it's got Aaron Morin, who, you know, Joni loves Chachi. She, uh, she played Joni on that. She's she's the main kind of girl on it. Uh, it's I don't know. I thought it was really fun. I had never seen it before. I'd heard of it only in the context of this is a movie that James Cameron worked on when he was young. Uh, but I didn't really know anything else about it. And I was highly entertained by it because it is uh, it is a blast. It is like- super Sounds like those two would uh, would make a decent double header. um, They would. They would from perhaps a live event. (laughs) Maybe. So anyway, while 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 Cameron is working on some special effects shots for the film, in fact, specifically the one we were just talking about with the mealworms, while he's working on that, these two approves two producers arrive on set. These guys are working on a sequel to Piranha, which is the cult hit that Corman had produced that had been directed by Joe Dante very early in his career. Uh, Someone had suggested Cameron as their special effects supervisor. So they were coming by to meet him, get to know this guy, see if this is the guy they wanted for the job. Uh, And they show up as he's doing this effect. And to them, what it looks like is that this guy is able to direct worms to wiggle on cue because he's turning on the current of that electricity, <laughs> get them to wiggle. We hit cut, turn off the current, and they stop. They're like, if this guy can direct worms, then he, he should probably be able to handle some actors. <laughs> so, so one of the producers, one of these guys who walks in is a guy named Ovidio Asinitis. I'm assuming I'm saying that right. I don't know if I said it wrong. I don't care because this guy seems like kind of a dick. Uh, (laughs) if he's he's offended if he's still alive i don't care anyway he's an italian producer who had a penchant for firing directors a few days into shooting so that he could take over the productions himself Uh, because he's getting a lot of his funding from american studios like warner brothers Uh, warner brothers was supposed to actually originally i believe distribute piranha 2 and it was easier for him to get funding i think if he hired an american director because they were worried about trans translation issues and things like that so he could never get hired as a director so what he would do is he would hire a director find a reason to fire them and then take over the production and direct the rest of it himself even though he's never credited as the director on them Hmm. cameron of course didn't know any of this at the time uh though he would soon learn piranha 2 actually had another guy directing it originally because remember Cameron's being approached to be the special effects supervisor on it. The original director was a guy named Miller Drake, who had left the project over creative differences with Asinitis, after which Cameron was given the job. Miller Drake, by the way, I looked this guy up, so I'm like, I wonder if he ever bounced back and had a career. Well, he had a long career after this as a visual effects editor on everything from Cliffhanger to Batman and Forever to Fast and Furious. But his first credit as a visual effects editor came in 1989, and the film was James Cameron's The Abyss. <laughs> uh, nice. And then he worked again with Cameron on Terminator 2 and True Lies. So I wonder oh. if they had some some Piranha 2 stories that they were bouncing back and forth on the sets of those. I'm sure. I, that, <laughs> that, oh, gosh, that would be uh, uh, to be to be a fly on the wall for those yeah. conversations. <laughs> uh, from all reports... The shoot for Piranha 2, which officially is called Piranha 2, The Spawning, uh, was a chaotic one. 
no sets had been built when Cameron arrived. Uh, they're in Jamaica. This is where they're shooting. No sets have been built. No locations had been secured. Uh, one scene, once Cameron got there and secured some, some of the sets and some locations, one of the scenes had to be shot in an actual morgue. There's a scene where the the hero, the the woman, and her like boyfriend guy have to go look at a body that's been devoured by piranhas. So they had to break into a morgue. Well, they had to use an actual morgue. They didn't know at the time that when they went in that it was a working morgue and there were bodies just laying out. <laughs> so Cameron <laughs> saw this. He's like, I've got cast and crew coming in here. We got to get this body out of here. Well, they couldn't move the body. So they just built a wall out of plywood, painted it and covered the body up. So while the actors were working in the scene, there's a, what looks like a wall behind them. And it's actually just, there's a dead body on the other end of that. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, but Cameron, he was never allowed to see the dailies of the footage that he had shot. He had very little control over what was going on. And by the fifth day of shooting, he was fired by Asinitis. I'm not sure what the reasoning, like what what precedent he used to fire him, like what the reason he gave him for firing right. him was. I, I couldn't find that, but he gets fired basically so this guy can take over as the director himself. He directed the rest of the movie on his own. Yeah. Did you watch uh, Piranha 2, Gary? I did. Um, it starts off fun, but it's uh, it's yeah, pretty it, bad. It's pretty it's, bad. It's pretty um, bad. There's some like crazy things to think about that go on in the movie, but well, it starts off with a lot of like underwater footage. I'm like, well, this is very James Cameron of you. <laughs> like yeah. a lot of a lot of scuba diving at the beginning of the movie. It's kind of sad because uh, while in some interviews Cameron can come across as snobby, there's an air of like vulnerability to him sometimes as well. You can tell in some early interviews he worries about being perceived as good enough yeah. uh, to do this stuff. And uh, uh, the Parada thing was a huge blow to this uh, because within so many films, he moved into this position. Now he's the director of the film, but then immediately he gets fired. Which makes him kind of wonder, do I have what it takes to be a director? Yeah, exactly. He fly, he flies out to Rome and uh, he wants to confront the whole situation to see yeah. if he can find out where it all went wrong. And it turns out in reality, uh, a son, a or whatever his name is, it was a, kind of what you just said. I mean, it was he got to see some of the dailies that he had never gotten to see before. And it turns out it it works fine uh, what he's shooting. But a couldn't get the budget for the movie without hiring an American director. So when, right. They, yeah. That's, that's kind of what I was saying. That's kind of a, something he did his whole career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but he just really, you know, it was just that he did just want to direct the movie himself. So he was looking for some, somebody that a Patsy, a Patsy that he could just fire and have an yeah. excuse and then take over. Yeah. I think uh, his excuse on this was that, Oh, the footage isn't working. We can't cut it together to make it look good, which Cameron later found out was bullshit. Exactly. So, yeah, like you said, he flies out to Rome. He, he has very little money at this time. He uh, he was supposed to be paid $10,000 for Piranha 2. He was supposed to get half of it up front, half of it when he completed the movie. Well, I'm sure when the producer hired him, he knew he was going to fire him and would only have to pay him $5,000 because that's all that he got paid. So he used what little money he had left to fly out to Rome where um, Asinitis or Asanitis or whatever is name is he's in post-production on the film he talks the producer into showing him a rough cut uh like gary said not just not just dailies but an actual rough cut of the film and he says sees that the footage that he shot does work really well he also sees that 
this guy had completely reworked the film into absolute schlock, even by B-movie standards. Like he hires penthouse pets for scenes just so that he can have women on screen with their tits out and, you know, for no good reason <laughs> other than he, he wanted to see it, I guess. Uh, so the movie is pretty, it's bad. It's a bad movie. There's no defending really Piranha 2. And you can't even defend it as like, an early example of James Cameron learning his craft. You could do that with Galaxy of Terror, I think. You could even maybe do it with Battle Beyond the Stars, even though he didn't direct those. But on this, other than like what I think is a very coincidental inclusion of some underwater footage and scuba diving and things like that, this is not a James Cameron movie. Mm. It, it does not have any of his fingerprints on it at all. It is his. Uh, it does have his name on it. But uh, that was a legality thing because he didn't he didn't have the money to go to take them to court to get his name off of it, basically, mm-hmm. is where it fell. Yeah, the, the OG was a jaw, uh, Jaws ripoff, the OG Piranha movie. But yeah. this one takes it to another level. It's literally just copying scenes. Um, well, and the and the original one was Joe Dante getting to make a Joe Dante movie. And right. the first Piranha is a fucking blast. It's a great it's a great of all the Jaws ripoffs. It's probably the best. I mean, it is the best. Apparently, like, snuck in to the editing bay and recut a lot of the movie yeah. himself. I got re, re, recut again, I believe, before. Yeah. Released, though. <laughs> uh, he said, obviously, it, was, it wasn't changing much. He, he was saying, like, literally, I think he says, because it wasn't like I saw Citizen Kane in this thing, but... It, it let me see that what I was shooting was okay and my faith was kind of restored. But, but that if the only movie that has my name on it is a piece of trash, then getting my next job is going to be really difficult. Right. And mm. uh, so, hey, what can you learn from this? Uh, the, the guy's clearly always thinking about the future. Well, yeah. Well, the thing <laughs> is that the mentality when he took this job, I'm sure he wasn't dreaming of doing a sequel to Piranha. Uh, but the mentality when you worked, when you came up working for Roger Corman, you get offered a job directing a movie, you take it and you do your best with it. Uh, and that worked out for a lot of directors. It worked out for Martin Scorsese. It worked out for Francis Ford Coppola. You know, these guys all started working in their careers early on in their careers with Roger Corman and they made some schlock. I mean, Francis Ford Coppola made Dementia 13. Then a few years later, he made The Godfather. They, they took the job. That was the mentality when you worked in the Roger Corman school of film. So that's why he took the job immediately. Not because, you know, he, he just saw this as another step in his career that had been moving along at a pretty good pace. And unfortunately, the guy he was working for screwed him over. So when he's he's in Rome at this point, he flew over to Rome to, to mess around, to try to see what was going on with Piranha. He wanted to confront the situation, as we said. And the problem is, he had used all his money to get to Rome. He didn't have the money to get back. <laughs> he did that. He, he, he would basically he's staying at a hotel. He's living at a hotel and he didn't even have the money to eat. He would steal scraps of food off of the, the room service carts. And that's how he was feeding himself. Like he was just, I mean, and James Cameron's already a pretty thin guy. So yeah. he's just like, you know, getting thinner, uh, not doing well. After a few days, his body just breaks down and he gets a fever, gets very sick. And it was while he had that fever that he has a dream. And in this fever dream, Gary, I don't know how you feel about this. This sounds like a legend that James Cameron is putting out there. I don't know how true this story actually is. But it, when the legend is this fun, I say print the legend. 
So this is uh, yeah. that's where I'm going with this. And, there, and this comes from multiple accounts. But of course, all those accounts come from James Cameron telling this story. He's having a fever dream. And he in this dream, he sees a chrome torso emerging from an explosion and dragging itself across the floor with kitchen knives in his hands. So he's got these knives that's pulling itself because it doesn't have legs. Its legs have been exploded or whatever. Uh, so he gets this really vivid image in his mind. And when he, when he wakes up, he starts sketching this chrome figure onto hotel stationery. And as he's drawing this, ideas for a story about this image start flooding his mind. And this, of course, is the beginning of what would eventually become the Terminator. So when we talk about Piranha 2, and the reason we go through all these films, Galaxy of Terror, Battle Beyond the Stars, his experiences working for Roger Corman, his experiences getting screwed over on Piranha 2, this all leads to the Terminator. Like, I, you have to think, had he not been fired off of Piranha 2 and had to go confront the guy in Rome and had to start eating shit off of uh, uh, food carts in the hotel, would he have ever had the idea for Terminator? What right. would his career have looked like if he hadn't gone through all of this stuff? Uh, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah it's true. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about. Like, sometimes the, you know, shitty things happen that will honestly lead to better things. The story, the legend about seeing the thing, I, I mean, it, it sounds like a fun thing. I, I saw one interview where like somebody like directly said, uh, like, you know, you, you we've seen reports that you had an image of a skeletal metal robot emerging from fire. That was like the thing. I never see him like delve into it further than that, than like seeing that. I mean, and then he goes into... Yes, but when I was writing this, this is what I was thinking. And he like tells a whole other story. So, I, you know, I don't know how much. Is well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that even if, if they, he had that dream, it was probably subconsciously pulling from other ideas that he already had batting around in his brain. That's how that's how ideas work. You know, Piranha 2, by the way, would eventually be released. It was not released by Warner Brothers as originally expected. They passed on it and it was a, it was released by a small company that was actually just a front for a porn distributor. Uh, and although, as I mentioned, for legal reasons, Cameron's name is still on the film, but he does not consider it part of his filmography. He considers The Terminator to be his first film. And I I honestly agree with that because it sounds like he barely directed anything on Piranha 2. Now, if there is one positive thing that Cameron took from the Piranha 2 shoot, it was that that's where he met Lance Hendrickson. Lance Hendrickson is one of the stars of Piranha 2. He, he, he's the chief Brody character of the film. And the two would become close friends on set. And Hendrickson would appear in several of Cameron's films afterwards. Uh, we'll talk about him a lot over the next few weeks, I'm sure. Uh, in fact, this is kind of a trend with Cameron. Uh, we discussed this about a lot of our directors, most recently David Cronenberg, how uh, he you know, takes his collaborators onto other projects with him. But Cameron, Cameron started doing that with people that he worked with on films he didn't even direct. Battle Beyond the Stars, Galaxy of Terror. If you go and you look at a lot of the crew members on these, especially folks in the technical and the special effects departments, you'll see a lot of them end up working in similar roles on Cameron's own films. Uh, I mean, all very far into his career. You can see people from like Battle Beyond the Stars and Galaxy of Terror working on Avatar, you oh, know, wow. decades later. I mean, the, the score for Battle Beyond the Stars was composed by James Horner. Very early in his career, James Horner, of course, would go on to work with Cameron years later on Titanic, for which he won an Oscar, and on Avatar. Nice. Uh, and, and he met him through a film that he didn't even direct. 
about that? He is yeah. he is loyal. He is. Uh, to be fair, uh, you know, I appreciate that he saw something in Lance Hendrickson, and I love Lance Hendrickson. And it's now I feel like on this show so far, it sounds like I've only talked shit about Lance Hendrickson. Uh, <laughs> Lance Hendrickson is great, <laughs> but I I play with Lance Hendrickson, but he's Chief Brody. If Chief Brody refused to tuck in his shirt, smoke two packs a day, and had uh, <laughs> like left his wife because he was on like. Uh, two week bender. Yeah, uh, yeah. A, much more, a much more interesting Chief Brody is what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's, he's Chief Brody in that he is he is a police officer in this area, <laughs> hunting a hunting killer fish. Hunting killer fish. Right. <laughs> uh, he's pretty great at it. He's he's one of the few bright points. Of, no, he's still one hundred percent Lance So he makes he makes the thing watchable. He's, I think he had it in his contract that hey, I'm not. I I I will not comb my hair. what what little hair i have left does not get combed or get a haircut he's like no i'm hanging out on the beach for this whole shoot i'm on vacation (laughs) this is what we're doing so with a uh a little bit of help uh from his father who gave him a loan uh cameron makes his way back to california he's energized by this new story idea He's, he, he goes actually his friend Randall Frakes. Remember the guy that they, they made Xenogenesis together? He's yeah. sleeping on Frakes' house, uh, on his floor in his house. On and his house. On like his Snoopy. house. On, on the roof. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's sleeping on the floor of his house. And he's, it, it was there that he starts working on the treatment for the Terminator. And uh, remember, Cameron's not like a screenwriter, really. <laughs> he, he didn't really even know how to format a, a screenplay. So... When it was time to turn the treatment into a script, he contacted his friend Bill Wisher, the other guy that made Xenogenesis with him. Uh, he wanted help writing, turning this into a screenplay, but he also wanted somebody that he could kind of bounce ideas off of. Uh, Bill Wisher doesn't have any writing credit on the Terminator, but he did actually help construct several scenes in the early parts of the film, like uh, some of Sarah Connor's early stuff and the police uh, the police station scene, which is a major set piece in the film, Bill Wisher actually helped to construct that as well. Uh, I'm not sure why he didn't get any writing credit on it, though, unless the ideas were so reworked or it was some agreement he had with Cameron. I'm not really sure. This this really allowed Cameron to get back into a science fiction thing. This was his first experiment with like, I have an idea for something where I can talk about something I'm passionate about, but do it in the science fiction setting of like what we talked about earlier, where he's like, these guys have a better idea of what life's really about than the day-to-day people. Well, I think that's something we talked about a lot back in our Starship Troopers episode. And even, even in our RoboCop episode, when we were covering Paul Verhoeven is that sci-fi is a, is a really good way to hide ideas behind like sci-fi of a, a visage of sci-fi, you know, uh, and Starship Troopers, especially, of course, we know, uh, we mentioned earlier, one of the sci-fi writers that Cameron grew up reading was Robert Heinlein, who mm-hmm. wrote Starship Troopers. I always feel like you can get away with this in science fiction and then maybe next is horror. And yeah. uh, Terminator is definitely a mixture of both of those things. For sure. So at this time in his career, Cameron had an agent, uh, thanks to getting hired on Piranha that helped him get an agent. Uh, when he showed his agent the idea for Terminator, the agent hated it. He thought it was trash. He told him to get rid of it. He said it was a lousy idea. You should forget it and focus on something else. So what does James Cameron do? He fires his agent. 
which is an extraordinarily dangerous move for a guy with no money and no job prospects. Yeah. Uh, but this is also the first of many, many times that James Cameron would be doubted by the Hollywood establishment. And the first of many times that Cameron forged ahead either out of recklessness or extreme confidence in his own abilities. And one of the first of many times that it paid off for him. Yeah. This is going to be his, uh, it's his MO yeah. for the rest it's of his, his career. Pays yeah. to be ballsy, you <laughs> yeah. know. Like most of us will never. I don't know. You get so caught up in like, I can't lose this job, and Cameron's like, "Nah, fuck this job, man." Like I'll <laughs> say what I want to say, and and we'll see what happens. And I guess he's got enough talent to back it up. So Cameron was able to find someone else who had passion for this project, and that was Galan Hurd. Roger Corman's former assistant who had worked with Cameron on Battle Beyond the Stars and was responsible for Cameron getting his first promotion on that project. Uh, so the two decided, she she read the script, she liked it, she saw its potential. So they wanted to shop this around, try to get funding for it, and the two decided to present themselves as a directing and producing team to potential investors. Cameron uh, actually sold the rights to the Terminator for a dollar to Heard. One dollar in return for a blood oath that she would produce the film only if he directed or would not get made. It basically, if the investors aren't down with him directing the project, then they're going to pass on it. They're not going to make it. They're only that that was their agreement. To her credit, Heard stood by Cameron's side. The first thing that a lot of these potential investors did was to try to edge Cameron out and hire someone else as a director, but Heard was determined to keep her promise. Uh, and she did. She did not bow to any of these investors who wanted to get rid of Cameron. She was not going to make this movie if Cameron wasn't the director. It should be noted, though, that because of this deal, remember, he sold, he legally sold the rights to Gale and Heard. So he no longer owned any rights to the Terminator or its characters or anything else involved. Anything else is Terminator related that he wasn't directly involved in, like Terminator 3, Terminator Salvation, which he didn't direct or produce, uh, theme park rides, action figures, video games, toys. You know, he didn't make a dime off of any of them. Because well, this is where uh, George Lucas one-upped him, I guess. <laughs> yes, that's very true. That's very true. Uh, he didn't make a dime off of any of that. Now, he got, obviously, directing fees, like when he did Terminator 2, but anything else that's Terminator-related, unless he's on it as a director or producer, he's not making any money off of it. That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? Because it's still <laughs> just like this lingering thing out there that Terminator, just for whatever reason, I think we talked about this on the, the preview episode for this one, that just like Terminator just continues to persist just like the Terminator it. itself yeah <laughs> well yeah he and i think cameron was the producer or executive producer on the most recent one the uh south was it what was the most recent one dark fate dark yeah dark, yeah dark i think fate. he was the producer on that so at least he's getting some money off of that one you know not that he he's doing fine financially yeah yeah, yeah. cameron's cameron's okay. <laughs> he's all set <laughs> we're not worried about him <laughs> uh, also if you watch the terminator during those opening credits which are incredible opening credits by the way uh i actually well, I, I rewatched the movie this morning and i rewound the credits because i wanted to watch them again because they're so cool yeah uh, but you'll notice that the script the screenplay is credited to james cameron with gail ann hurt mm -hmm. but according to cameron she never actually wrote anything on the script she would give suggestions that's part of the producer's job is to give suggestions on the script and the the uh the storytelling but she never did any actual writing and they only included her as a co-screenwriter as kind of part of their team-based sales pitch 
because she had a little bit more experience than him. And they thought that that might help them with potential investors. Mm. Statement on that basically just says that he had written the treatment, most of the first draft already. Uh, and then she became involved in just kind of polishing things up. Yeah. Uh, he says the initial idea was his, the collaboration was that she was there to kind of take some of the rough edges off. Yeah. Uh, he, he definitely says the strength for both of them is that they were pulling their resources together and forming what he calls an impenetrable barrier to anybody who wanted to take it away from us or change the concept. He says, quote, it's always a fight to preserve your vision against the vision of others. If you have five people working as producers, you get five completely different concepts of what the story is really about. And often they're completely irreconcilable. You have to fall back on your own instinct. Sometimes the toughest thing to do is to trust yourself. You might not find that possible in a collaboration if it wasn't a relationship with someone you'd worked with before and you knew. We've been very fortunate with the support of Hemdale and Orion, which financed and distributed the film, since we didn't have much of a track record. We had directed and produced before, but not on the scale of Terminator. But both companies had high hopes for us and the picture. And there were some times in the early stages where we did think that they would try to scoop it out from beneath us. But I guess because it was both of them, he basically says nobody ever tried anything. It was just yeah. like they got exactly what they wanted. Yeah, and, and based on the strength of their pitch, they were able to secure distribution through Orion Pictures. Uh, Orion was did not finance it. They would they basically uh, Orion was gonna gonna get it into theaters. Uh, it probably helped that Orion. If you look into the history of Orion Pictures, its origins lie with folks who had worked under Roger Corman in the past, so they had some connections there. Uh, Orion, though, they said that they're like, yeah, we'll distribute the film if Cameron and Heard can get financing somewhere else. That financing would come in the form of a guy named John Daly and Hemdale Pictures, who you mentioned. Uh, if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you might recognize the name Hemdale, might sound a little bit familiar to you. This was the production company that was founded by John Daly and David Hemmings. David Hemmings is the British actor that is the star of Dario Argento's Deep Red. Uh, Hemdale, uh, we mentioned it previously on an episode because they also produced Dan O'Bannon's Return of the Living Dead. They were actually working on these around the same time when they were they were kind of finishing things up on the Terminator when they started working on Return of the Living Dead. So they're responsible for getting both of those movies into theaters. So John Daly was he was pretty intrigued by Cameron's script. Uh, he was especially intrigued that they had already secured finance or distrib distribution because usually you get financing and then your next hurdle is to find somebody to distribute the film. They already had that part set up. So that, that you know, that's a that's in their favor. Uh, when Cameron went in to pitch it to him, he knew he's like, I really want to nail this. I want to sell them on this pitch. One thing that I'm learning reading about James Cameron is he is a hell of a pitch man. Like the guy knows how to walk into a studio, walk into a financer. And I mean, he's that's what he was doing with Roger Corman, mm. getting those promotions. He's like, this is what we should do. He's pitching himself to Roger Corman, basically. And he's doing the same thing here. He knows how to, he knows how to convince people. I, I think it's because he's he's legitimately that passionate about everything yeah. that he does. Like he he really believes in it. Like, I mean, the entire time, like if you're digging into uh, anything you can find on the Terminator, I mean, anytime he talks about it still like I don't know why he doesn't do a fucking commentary on the on a Blu-ray. But anytime he still talks about the Terminator, just like the initial stuff for it, he still cares about it. Like you could tell like what 
what his mindset was at the time when I was talking about like the the robot coming out of the fire and stuff like that. He was talking about like he just envision this robot like the the way it would look the endoskeleton nothing had ever been filmed that way before he was thinking about things like westworld that he loved so much as a kid and like yul britter's face comes off and there's a transistor radio underneath it he was like what 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 could that look like yeah all the way and uh he said he's not very visually satisfying because you get the idea of what it is but uh what's inside that making the spatial features move yeah so he's like i wanted to make like the definitive movie robot like in a way nobody's ever seen one before like he just gets excited about it yeah he does so when he he's going to uh pitch this to Hemdell, to john daly specifically uh, like I said, he wanted to, he wanted this pitch to be it. He didn't want to have to come back. He wants this pitch to seal the deal. So the, here's his idea. He has his buddy, Lance Hendrickson. Remember they've become friends. He, and Lance Hendrickson obviously is an actor. Uh, he has Lance Hendrickson show up to the meeting early at Hemdale's offices. He's dressed as the Terminator. Uh, he kicks in the door to John Daly's office. He's wearing a ripped t-shirt, a leather jacket, knee-high leather boots. He's got gold foil from, I think, like a cigarette pack. He's worked around his teeth to make it look like his teeth are made of metal. Uh, he's got special effects cuts painted on his face. Uh, so he's got like, he's like a damaged Terminator. He kicks in John Daly's office, scares the shit out of Daly's poor receptionist. <laughs> and then he just sits there in the waiting room, staring Oh, not moving for like 15 <laughs> minutes. He's like sitting there for like 15 minutes until James Cameron shows up. And that was how the pitch started. Wow. Cameron comes in, he makes his pitch. He shows uh, some sketches of scenes from the screenplay. Uh, I mean, as we've mentioned several times, Cameron's a very accomplished artist. So that does very much help him on a pitch that he can show visually. This is what it's going to look like. And Daly was so impressed with, with his passion and with what he was showing him that he agreed to back the film's budget of about $6 million. They've got their budget. Uh, they've got their screenplay. They're, you know, they're, they're ready to go. But, of course, we've got to find an actor to play the film's hero. Uh, that's how these things work. So uh, the hero, in this case, being Kyle Reese. Uh, Orion, they really wanted a rising star, uh, but they also wanted someone that had a lot of appeal overseas. Uh, Mike Medavoy who was the studio's co-founder, he had recently met uh, a young man named Arnold Schwarzenegger. I say young. I mean, I think Schwarzenegger's in his mid-30s at this point, so he's not like a 20-year-old, you know, no, no experience kind of guy. He, he's already had a full career as a bodybuilder at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. But he, he had met Arnold Schwarzenegger at a party, and he sent his agent the script with the lead role in mind. Schwarzenegger at this time was a five-time Mr. Universe, a seven-time Mr. Olympia. He was already a like a a legend in the world of bodybuilding. And by 1982, when all this is going around, this is uh, a couple years before the movie came out, 1982, he'd already been in Hollywood for over a decade. Mm. His first screen credit was Hercules in New York, uh, (laughs) where his heavily accented voice is overdubbed and he's credited as Arnold Strong. It is very bad. If you've never seen (laughs) Hercules in New York, it it is... it's uh, tough when it's like it's, not even his real voice. And yeah, it's, it's very bad. Oh. Uh, he'd also had some small roles in films like Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, uh, Bob Rafelson's Stay Hungry, which was probably his first like real like role where his character had like a name. Uh, it was in the 1977 documentary Pumping Iron, however, uh, that he that was what actually made him a star, a documentary about him and his bodybuilding. And that led to his lead role in John Milius's Conan the Barbarian. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to get too far into Schwarzenegger's background beyond what I just said, uh, because we're already going to go long talking about James Cameron's background. Maybe we'll get into more about Schwarzenegger when we do like a John Melius series or something sometime when we talk about Conan down the line or something. There is a great interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger on um, uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast for anybody who really wants to know what that guy's like. It's some reason they get into a lot of him first coming to the country and what they did. And that guy was always, it's not just that he looked good. That guy He's has driven. always been driven and smart. Yeah. Like Probably just, why him and Cameron get along so well. Yeah. They're very similar in that way. Yeah. He just, he, he just like, I mean, from being a bricklayer to becoming an actor and a bodybuilder and like, just like, I mean, the guy just, knew what he wanted and he went for it and so well, i know i've i've heard stories of schwarzenegger when he was you know a kid in austria selling like sodas on the beach like starting his own like being a little entrepreneur when he's a child you know like he's been driven his entire life they um, he straight up tells stories about his his friend uh frank uh god i can't think of the guy's name he's in pumping iron with him but uh also a professional bodybuilder like just that they when they first came to la like they they said when they met and they became best friends and stuff and they're both just like these guys that just are driven to make something of themselves and this guy's like now i think the the most famous chiropractor around la (laughs) and stuff like that but uh he talks about they became like bricklayers like they were like literally like uh they they realized there was a market because people thought for some reason building uh, the way things were built in Sweden were like somehow more special than the way things were being built in American. Like, oh, we could do this like Swedish style or we could do this German style. And like you could add that to like something when you're just like putting together something for someone in Los Angeles and they'll be like, oh, shit. Yeah, like that's what I want. Like I got to have that style of thing. So they would go and and they would like he, he would just get bodybuilders from the gym he was in who had no experience whatsoever. And he, he straight up tells this story about like, they would just go to houses. Like he would pitch to the people like, Oh, I'd love to build this thing for you. It'll be this much money, but you know, it'll be worth it. It's totally German style. You'll love it. It'll be so great. And they're like, <laughs> the accent yeah. probably helped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they're like, and they're like, okay, uh, how much? And he's like, Oh, it's gonna, it's gonna cost like $12,000. But we'll build this thing for you. And he's, they're like, Oh man, I don't, I don't know. And blah, blah, blah. Then he'd go like, he said that it was like a workout thing. Like he would go to his buddy and then they, his buddy would talk in German back to him and like, basically be yelling and screaming nonsense in German. And then he would come in. He's like, my friend is very upset about this thing. He says that, I don't know. He was like, you're fucking stupid for saying that you would only pay this much. But uh, I talk it down to like $10,000 instead of $12,000. And they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And that's like how he made his money. Like, he's just, he's that kind of guy. Yeah. Like he always has been. And they, they talks about like how much money they made. Like, even if he had not become an actor, like how much money they were raking in just from his hustle with <laughs> well, like, th- building shit. I think he also like is ve- he's very driven, but also like knows himself as a commodity, if that makes sense. Like, right. he know he knows his strengths. He knows he's very charismatic. Uh, that's why he was the guy talking to people, you know, uh, right. but he's, he's just got a really good mind for it. And he always has his entire career. So when when they get sent his they get sent the script for the Terminator, Arnold's agents think, you know, they, they're like, oh, we want you to look at this for the lead role. And they're, of course, thinking lead role is Kyle Reese. Cameron, however, was kind of skeptical about him 
playing Kyle Reese uh, because Arnold is enormous. <laughs> he knew that Cameron knew that if he, if I cast this guy as Kyle Reese, I'm going to have to find someone even bigger to play the Terminator. If he's going to be a worthy adversary, mm-hmm. uh, the studio famously wanted OJ Simpson as the Terminator, mm-hmm. uh, but Cameron, uh, he's like, I have a hard time seeing that. That guy's really likable. I have a hard time seeing him as like a believable killing machine. He wouldn't kill anybody and, and hold for <laughs> laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but truthfully, OJ Simpson, he would be hard to see as an emotionless killing machine, mm. uh, the, <laughs> which is what the Terminator needs to be. Uh, Cameron, though, he agreed to meet with Arnold uh, kind of as a courtesy to the studio, but he had planned on kind of sabotaging it. He, his plan was he's we're going to go to lunch. He's going to pick a fight with Schwarzenegger, and then he's going to be able to go back to Hemdell and tell him this Schwarzenegger guy is an asshole. I don't want to work with him. And then we'll move on to the next guy on the list. But uh, it didn't work out that way because Schwarzenegger was so entertaining and so excited about the script that Cameron couldn't help but like him. Uh, they, they clicked like immediately. Uh, and even though Schwarzenegger's agents wanted it, him to go for the role of Reese, they wanted him to play a good guy. He kept talking about how the villain should be played. He kept saying like, you know, he's a robot. He should move like this. He should move in a way that's not human. Like he was very passionate about how he felt that the Terminator should be played, even though he was supposed to be trying to get the other job. And Cameron's like watching him the whole time. He's looking at Arnold, looking at not just like how big and muscular is he is, but like how angular his face is. You know, uh, Arnold's got a very striking face, especially around this time where he's he's got these like sharp cheekbones, this big jaw line. Like it, he he looks almost like a robot. So Cameron's watching him and listening to him passionately talk about the Terminator character. And he's like thinking this guy would make a really great Terminator, man. I don't know about Kyle Reese, but he'd make a hell of a Terminator. So he takes this idea back to his studio and uh, kind of pitches them on it. And then by the next day, Schwarzenegger signing the contract to play the Terminator. Wow. Yeah. He says, uh, quote, uh, he and I met and neither of us felt really comfortable about him in that part. It had never occurred to anyone that he considered playing a villain. But as we talked more and more, it started to become apparent that that's really the role he wanted. Now, Arnold is a shaven-headed, eyebrowless, half-man, half-machine in a black leather jacket with wraparound sunglasses. It does break the mold of what people think about him. Uh, And Arnold has to eventually work himself to a point where he realizes he can do what he wants as an actor and that he starts to become willing to take chances. He, He talks about that he thinks that like even as the the movie gets pitched like people just don't know what to expect from like arnold schwarzenegger in this movie and they know that that's going to be an issue that they're like thinking this is going to be like arnold schwarzenegger as dirty harry basically Mm. and uh they're gonna be taken on a whole different ride well well arnold's not like a movie star quite at this point he was he, he had gotten some fame from pumping iron and then conan was edging him towards being a movie star but he wasn't like what we think of Arnold Schwarzenegger as now, you know? Uh, So there were expectations on him, but not like there would be, you know, well on into his career. When he was kind of, he he said he talked about like uh, Orion was really interested in like, Oh, we get this guy and, or uh, the, the poster can be Arnold with his chest bared and uh, you know, like something like that. And that'll drive women to want to come see this thing (laughs) and, and that sort of thing. And uh, he's like, yeah, but, there's nothing sexual about 
this movie. <laughs> like yeah. it's the, you know, at least especially for what we want Arnold to do now. Yeah. Like, it's not gonna be uh he's a sexual sexless, emotionless machine. Yeah. Like it's he probably uh, doesn't even have a dick. <laughs> what do you think? You think the Terminator yeah. has a dick? Yeah. Why would why would they? And he says it's, well, he he literally says like it's 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 to me it made that even more scary because he's absolutely perfect in every way, but he's like a perfect male figure, but he does not. That that's not even a focus for him. He's like a fucking Ken doll down there. Yep, <laughs> yeah. that's it. Except he's uh-huh. not actually because we see his dick in this movie. I think. Yeah. No, he did in say, his very uh, first in his very first scene when he's walking naked towards the punks. That yeah. dong is swinging. <laughs> <laughs> he said uh cameron did say the initial impulse was to make a gritty street level science fiction movie that you would buy as if it were really happening but once arnold came into the picture it became completely different from how he had originally envisioned it he said i thought of the terminator as more of a anonymous saturnine figure uh he, he mentions jürgen proc uh which i'm not familiar with he's like that's who i had in mind and, well uh, i know that he was looking at uh at lance hendrickson as a possible term well, yeah yeah we mentioned mm-hmm. that and yeah. uh, he said but when when it was arnold it just took on this larger than life sheen to the whole thing well he it said, had to <laughs> yeah he said i found myself on set doing things i didn't think that i'd ever do scenes that were supposed to be purely horrific that just now couldn't be anymore there was like uh, a flamboyance to some of the stuff we did <laughs> well his idea for the terminator when he was conceiving the movie was that the terminator was supposed to be able to infiltrate into into society unnoticed like he's supposed to blend in schwarzenegger's not one to blend in uh schwarzenegger is enormous he looks like a superhero so there's no way that he's going to blend in so they when they cast arnold in the role they kind of had to rethink how they were approaching this character almost, you know, Mm. Uh, they also other actors that they had looked at or, or that they had thought about before Arnold uh, included Sylvester Stallone, which sounds like you'd be in the same boat as Arnold, but Sylvester Stallone in the early eighties was very different than Sylvester Stallone in the mid to late eighties, where he basically started becoming an Arnold Schwarzenegger type. Uh, Mel Gibson was another one that, that they looked at as well. And I think both of those would have been a little more believable as like, regular dudes who could blend in yeah. you know than arnold uh but arnold has a lot of other aspects that i think essentially made this movie i mean schwarzenegger does not look human even in real life especially in 1984 arnold when he was right just massive huge. just, just massive huge, huge that's dude. why they could fucking cg him in like terminator salvation and, right uh, and you're still like this still looks like arnold yeah because he, he is he doesn't look human i mean <laughs> i do think that casting schwarzenegger in the role was still despite the fact that it didn't fit their original concept for the character it's still a brilliant bit of casting mm-hmm. and is i think very I, I think it's very likely that it helped to make the terminator the hit that it was uh, I love Lance Hendrickson. Uh, we've already talked about that. I think he's an awesome actor. I, I, he's one of the coolest character actors out there. But I'm not sure that we'd be still talking about the Terminator, at least in the way that we're talking about it, in the same way if anyone other than Arnold had been in that role. Yeah. It's a special thing that like gets added to a movie that um, uh, specifically in, in one of these interviews I read too, uh, somebody brings up Dawn of the Dead and said, it's like weird in the way that like Dawn of the Dead, like a lot of people start rooting for the zombie 
James Cameron says, he says, yeah, he's like, we started to learn that in this film, you can have it both ways. You root for Reese and you root for Sarah. Uh, you want them to live. You feel their emotions. And at the same time, you start to really appreciate the bad guy. You want to see him keep getting up. You want to see him dumbfound the stupid yeah. cops. Uh, he said, there's like, everybody's got this like little private fantasy world. We'd all love to be in and we'd love to shoot somebody we don't like. Uh, and we uh, just every minute of the day, you get to have your own way. He's like the Terminator, like for some reason with Arnold, it takes on this whole life of its own and it becomes the ultimate rude person. He's just outside of societal constraints. Doing now. whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, yeah, he's just this dark, <laughs> cathartic fantasy where he's walking in. You don't cringe in terror anymore. Like for, for some reason in The Terminator, you start to go with him. Like you 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 want to be with him for a moment and kick in a door where you're not supposed to go and like shoot some people you're not supposed to shoot. And then you get to go back to Kyle and Sarah and feel emotional and happy and feel like what it's like to be on the other side of that coming for you well the other advantage to casting arnold is remember this is a six million dollar movie this is pretty low budget uh, and if you've only got a limited budget for special effects why not cast a walking special effect yeah. as your star <laughs> right because every time arnold's on screen but even before he gets the damage on his face and stuff like that when he's just like regular arnold walking around like the techno the tech noir club and stuff like that like he is a special effect just by existing mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that's all you need is to put that guy on screen you don't need anything else you don't need cgi to to make him look a certain way he just looks that way yep that's just how he looks you think of bill paxton <laughs> and his two buddies that are hanging out at the telescope or whatever and they're just like what's wrong with this picture? And they're like looking at him. I don't know. They get like pretty violent with him early on, but me, I'd kind of be like, I feel like I'd kind of be like, Jesus, dude, like, what are you doing? I don't know. I'd be a little, a little more enthralled with what was happening. Not in a sexual because way. Because of his dog. Yeah. I was, yeah, was going to say not in a sexual way necessarily. <laughs> Just that you'd have to appreciate, like, look at this fucking guy. Who's <laughs> and honestly, this time watching it, I was kind of thinking, you know what? If I looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'd walk around naked most of the time, too. <laughs> <laughs> I just wouldn't give a shit. <laughs> would you gonna, would you just would you otherwise. just wait? Would you just wait in a room like crouched down so that when they open the door, you just slowly stand up? <laughs> yeah, probably, because that's the thing. I mean, listen, you know, I'm not I'm not going to justify anything, but our Arnold's been through his his stuff in the past too and everything and like you know but i just feel like arnold probably operates on a different playing field than most people he probably <laughs> yeah. does walk around with his dong out yeah. more than most people <laughs> probably is just naked more and he it's, is, it's he probably is uncomfortable for people yeah. you know but it's just it's arnold schwarzenegger and you're like well if you look like arnold schwarzenegger maybe I mean, his first major job as a like star was as a bodybuilder where you're basically naked anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> probably just, I mean, he literally, if you watch the movie pumping iron, he talks about like curling, uh, like he just like building that pump is like coming. Like every yeah, time he was like out, the famous coming. line from that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, this is a different guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've got the Terminator himself. He's cast. We we got that. That's important. Cause that's the name of the movie, <laughs> but that still leaves the roles, uh, the role of Kyle Reese baking. Cause remember they wanted Arnold for, Kyle Reese initially. Uh, so they got to find a guy to play Kyle Reese. Actors who were considered included uh, Sting, 
the not the wrestler i don't think i think that the actor uh, matt dillon kurt russell which i could definitely see tommy yeah. lee jones which is odd and um bruce springsteen <laughs> all right <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i've got nothing against bruce springsteen i just he's uh, the boss <laughs> I, just, uh, I don't know why why i don't like <laughs> I, he's I, got I, that he's got that know. He has he ever acted? has that look of like just that weather beaten like you could easily see him uh, if he if he told you he was a soldier you'd be like yeah that tracks that's I just what everyone i, I think it's, looks it's like. that it's that example of stunt <laughs> yeah. casting where yeah i think just, so too yeah you're just like oh well, you get the boss on here so yeah. this movie's gonna make money <laughs> we'll get him on the soundtrack and you know <laughs> Uh, <laughs> okay gary that's your assignment we i was really that. trying to think um, i was me. literally sitting here just like born as a terminator. Uh, i was definitely trying to think of like the weird al version of born to run but it's about killing so and born I in the apocalypse oh yeah uh, but no uh, you're right though i think you're on this at the born to run but it's born to run is where i went but oh, because okay. because you're being chased by a terminator yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, Cameron ultimately, as we know, chose Michael Bean. Uh, Michael Bean was 27 years old at the time. He had done some television work and a little bit of film. Uh, his, in fact, his first feature film role, his debut was in 1978 in an uncredited role in Greece, which is something I did not know about Michael I Bean before researching this episode. Uh, but they, he was relatively unknown at the time that he got the job in The Terminator. When he first learned about the film, he kind of thought it sounded silly uh but as soon as he met james cameron he changed his mind because once again james cameron is very enthusiastic and very convincing they didn't want michael bean at first because when he did his audition he had a southern accent and they're like can he can he not do a southern accent why is he doing that i don't think we can cast him because his character is not supposed to be southern and michael bean's agent was like what are you talking about he's not he's not southern Turns out the day of his audition, he had also been auditioning, or he had, I think, been in the play. Uh, he had been in Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, where he had to talk oh. in a southern accent, so he hadn't been able to drop the accent yet when he came in <laughs> for his audition. So they had him come back, and he was able to audition in like his regular, his regular voice. This made him for the 80s. Like I, I love yeah, Michael Bean. He I, seems like he I just, always thought he should be a bigger star than he than he than he became. I mean, he's he's continued to work steadily since the terminator but i just always felt like he should be more of a movie star and he's been more relegated to b movies if he's the star or supporting roles like in tombstone yeah. i was gonna say what's weird about him is that especially as kyle reese like something about him makes him very likable to me and i feel like he's just got like a nice likable face he seems yeah. trustworthy yeah. But he is in like roles like Tombstone where you're like, oh, you're the bad guy. Johnny but, Ring Johnny Ringo is one of the best roles he ever did. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> but there, but to be fair, sometimes what's cool is having those bad guys that are super charismatic, like that. which and Johnny Ringo is. Yeah, like like mm -hmm. you you hate him as a as a person, but as a character, he is electric every time he's on screen in that movie. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean the reason he's also role the is dad in Cherry Falls, where it looks oh, like yeah. he's like gonna have some kind of sexual relationship with his daughter but that's a whole other movie yeah uh, <laughs> so the reese role though I, I think the kyle reese role is a difficult one and i i think that michael bean pulls it off but this character has to deliver a lot of exposition 
a lot of exposition. Like he does it during a car chase. He does it in the middle of like gunfights. Like he's having to do it in the pauses of these action scenes is mm-hmm. kind of the way that they constructed it. Yeah. And he's also got to make all this goofy, wacky time travel future war stuff sound believable and it has to make sense to the audience because he's explaining all of this to Sarah Connor He's explaining that I'm a soldier from the future and this guy's coming back to kill you because you're the father of the future <laughs> yeah. uh, while they're being in a car being chased by the Terminator like he's delivering all this dialogue it's wild <laughs> uh, but he's also got to seem simultaneously tough enough to take on the Terminator and sensitive enough to fall in love with Sarah Connor just by seeing a photograph of her mm. and likable enough for her to fall in love with him in just a sh- very short span of time. It's you spelled it out perfectly, but yeah, he's got to have that vulnerable side where he's yeah. just like sitting there with a shotgun, but like makes you want to rub his back. Yeah. <laughs> and, massage and like, Oh, you were looking at my photo for so long. I want to yeah. have sex with you. Listen, I know that you're, <laughs> listen, we may not make it out of this alive, but I know you did your best. That kind of thing. <laughs> also, I mean, I guess uh, you know, she asked him if there was ever, you know, a woman. Yeah, he is a virgin. Person. She does yeah, take his I virginity. Was, I was about to say, <laughs> yeah. It also feels like she's just like, God, you're probably gonna die here. And I yeah, I feel terrible that you'll die a virgin. So yeah, we gotta do that. something about this. Also, I got stood up on a date earlier tonight, so I'm a little horny. <laughs> yeah, saddle <laughs> <Right>. up, cowboy. <laughs> uh speaking of Sarah Connor, though, we've got they've still got to get that role cast. For this role, Cameron had to find someone who could start the film as a sweet, every you know, regular girl. She's a waitress. She's kind of flustered. Her biggest concern is getting stood up on a date. You know, that's kind of like the biggest thing in her life at the time. But by the end of the film, she's got to be making homemade bombs. She's got to be rallying an injured Kyle Reese to his feet. And she has to be able to convincingly deliver the line, you're terminated, fucker. And <laughs> do this within an hour and a half movie, you know, an hour and 40 minute movie. Yeah. And that's, that's another tough role. Uh, Cameron auditioned a bunch of actresses for the role. Uh, he had them, he, he had, he had them come to Gail and Hurd's house and they would run up and down the driveway. So you could see how they looked fleeing the Terminator. Cause he knew there was going to be a lot of running in this movie. Uh, some of the actresses who auditioned or were considered for the role included uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, who I honestly think would be pretty great in this role. Yeah, uh, Je- yeah. Jessica Harper, who I love the, you know, the star of Phantom of the Paradise and Suspiria uh, Rosanna Arquette, Leah Thompson, who this would have been pre Back to the Future. Yeah, would have been. Uh, the role would ultimately go to Linda Hamilton, who was at the time a little known actress. She had just finished filming Children of the Corn, which was kind of her first big movie. But at the time she was auditioning for this, it had not come out yet. So nobody knew her from that yet. I, I meant to say this earlier, but he talks about that casting is a huge deal for him. Yeah. in this uh and this connects actually to some other stuff so i loved it because you mentioned dan o'bannon earlier and i love this but he said when he was talking about the effects and stuff there was one thing i read he said quote science fiction films are notoriously under budget under budgeted until george lucas came along what happened though is that filmmakers have become hardware happy the earlier movies told their stories through characters and i think that earlier approach is better Today's audience is being taken on a roller coaster ride where they sit there waiting to see an incredible special effect. They don't care what's going to happen next to the people because the filmmakers didn't create believable characters for whom the audience can really care for. Mm. With some of the smaller films coming out now, movie makers are realizing they have to concentrate on the people in the story. He said the most excellent example for him 
of this was the dead zone. Oh, and wow. so, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I loved that quote just because he connects it right back to Cronenberg there. Yeah. But uh, well, I mean, I, if you think about that quote and then think about Cameron's films, you do realize how character focused they really are. Like when I think of the Terminator, obviously we think of Arnold, but we think of Linda Hamilton. Mm. Very much. First and foremost, to me, even but that's that comes to my mind when somebody says the Terminator more so than the special effects or the action scene. Same thing with aliens. I'm thinking of Ellen Ripley. I'm thinking of Newt. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of, of Michael Bean's character, whose name I can't remember right now. Uh, but those are what come to mind to me when I think of aliens. And then I think of Ellen Ripley in a power loader fighting the alien queen. You know, yeah. I mean, because he, he says because he makes them a about those characters in those situations he says in this movie he says uh there, there's a love story at the heart of this movie yeah. to put it in a nutshell i would call it a romantic nightmare uh, <laughs> he said more work was spent from a writing and acting standpoint trying to make the people believable in an everyday setting uh both in the future and in the present these are people who get up eat their weeds complain about how much money they're not getting at work then something incredible happens to them and the future drops down on them like a bag of bricks the female lead linda hamilton goes from being a coffee shop waitress a student to where you see that she has to have the potential to be a world leader this is where this is what she's going to become it's a very strong role for a woman not one of these cliche female characters that has been in so much evidence recently and uh that was like very much this is like an early terminator interview where he's saying this this is like very much at the heart of what he's trying to make here very cool. Uh, so he would kind of finish off the casting uh, by, you know, he's got some other smaller roles that he's got to cast. He finds a role for his friend, Lance Hendrickson, who is cast as a police detective. Uh, Paul Winfield plays his partner. These are the guys who are kind of uh, investigating the Sarah Connor killings, the phone book murderer. Yeah. As they call him uh, Earl Bowen, who had had a role in battle beyond the stars uh, if you remember, Gary, remember the aliens that are all white? There's like five of them. And they speak in a hive mind. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He's he's the main one of those. Earl Bowen, who he plays the Weird. criminal psychologist, Dr. C Sil Silberland. I, I did think not yeah, notice that. Yeah, but, that's uh, Earl Bowen. Wow, that's he's wild. in Battle Beyond the Stars. Um, and uh, we mentioned him before, but even Cameron's old pal, Bill Paxton, appears in a small role as a punk who gets destroyed by the Terminator at the beginning of the film. Uh, I love that in the first scene we get of the Terminator killing people, he doesn't have any guns and he just literally punches a hole in a guy's body. <laughs> like, yeah, brings, yeah. His, brings his entire forearm out covered in blood. I love I it. was really thinking yeah. about this time. I was like, he punches him so hard, his fist just goes through, through him. him. Yeah. Through him. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, I mentioned all these actors. You mentioned Earl Bowen, by the way, who gets to come back. So I love that he gets yeah. to recreate a recurring that character. Later. A recurring oh, yeah. character. Very memorable. Uh, but I didn't. I, I try not to do a lot of research on this section because I don't want to take any anything away from Todd's little segment. But I know <laughs> without looking, one of the guys that I just mentioned is in Star Trek. Oh yeah. Uh, so I'm curious if there's any, uh, or oh, if yeah. there are any others other than the one that I'm thinking of. Oh, we've got a bunch today. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's actually quite a few, and uh, I'll just go ahead and dive right in. Uh, Mr. Joe Farrago or maybe Farrago, Farrago, whatever. Why not? Uh, he plays a TV anchorman here in uh, The Terminator. He was in 
Star Trek VI, the under the undiscovered country in 1991. He did oh, some second he, best uh, Star Trek movie. Yeah, yeah, he did some stunt work on on that on that movie. And then we've got uh, one of the other punks, not Brian, uh, not Bill, uh, not Bill Paxton, but Brian Thompson. Brian Thompson's uh, in everything. Yeah, he's in a <laughs> ton of stuff. Uh, he got started uh, in Star Trek on uh, Next Generation Season 2, Episode 8, A Matter of Honor from 1989 as uh, Clang. Isn't uh, he, he the serial killer in Cobra? Doesn't he play the serial killer oh, in man. Cobra? I think he, he does. Yeah, I think he so. He plays Shao Kahn in uh, Mortal Kombat, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, in a lot, he's in a lot of stuff. He, like any 80s and 90s, if it's an action movie, Brian Thompson's in there somewhere. Oh yeah. Well, he's he's he didn't stop just at next gen. He was also a uh, Klingon helmsman in Star Trek Generations. That was in 1994. That's right. He did two episodes huh. of uh, Deep Space Nine, and that was uh, To the Death season four, episode 22, which was directed by LeVar Burton and Rules of Acquisition, which was season two, episode seven, 1993. That's a Ferengi episode. If that I is definitely a Ferengi episode. <laughs> He, and, this guy looks i mean his face is made for that kind of stuff oh yeah like he's yeah. made to he's made to play bad guys and he's made to be under prosthetics for sure and then uh he finished out in the franchise on star trek enterprise he did three episodes in season four that was episode 12 13 and 14 Babel one united and the anar where he plays admiral valdor uh then we've got Dick Miller as the pawn shop clerk that uh, yeah. shows up and kills him. Yeah, we hadn't mentioned Dick Miller, but that's an old Corman alum. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Uh, Dante. Yeah, Joe Dante loves that guy. Yeah, yeah. he started in the franchise uh, also on Next Gen with season one, episode 11, The Big Goodbye. That's the one where uh, they go in and uh, Picard is playing uh, Tommy Gunn Dixon. So they're uh, the holodeck? Is it yeah, a holodeck that's episode? a holodeck episode. Okay. It's, that's a fun one. And then uh, he also did two episodes. Why can't of- somebody in the future be named Tommy Gunn Dixon? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dick Miller also did uh, two episodes of Deep Space Nine. It was season three, episode 11 and 12, past tense, parts one and two. Part two was actually directed by Jonathan Frakes. And uh, this isn't Star Trek, but it's so rare to find somebody who's done uh, some really cool animation. Dick Miller was also the voice of Chucky Saul in Batman Mask of the Phantasm Ugh. in 1993, which is still to this day one of my favorite Batman movies. I love yeah. that so much. Dick Anyways, Miller is an absolute legend. I mean, oh, we yeah. you know he he started he was in, he's in Little Shop of Horrors, the original, so that links back to that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he is a st- mainstay in Roger Corman, and because of his uh, status in Roger Corman movies, he became a mainstay in Joe Dante's movies. Who I think he might have been in everything Joe Dante did, oh, uh, wow. at least up. In, I think uh, Dick Miller died a couple years ago, like 2019. 2019, or so. yeah, yeah. He was pretty old, like in his 90s, but uh, so he lived a good, long, successful life. But one of my favorite character actors of all time, love that guy. Nice. And then we've got uh, Earl Bowen as Dr. Silverman. He uh, did some work on Next Gen as well, season two, episode two, where oh, silence no. has lease. That was huh. in 1988, and uh, after that, he had three different Star Trek video games: uh, <laughs> Star Trek Voyager Elite <laughs> Force in 2000, 
Star Trek Armada 2 in 2001 and Star Trek Bridge Commander in 2002. Every time you mention Star Trek video games, they, I, they sound made up. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it does. <laughs> I just love that this might be somebody's first episode and somebody was just like, Jesus, okay, we get it. Lots of people are in Star Trek. We went through a whole David Cronenberg series and had like two people. <laughs> no one was in there. And now somebody's first episode is going to be like, okay, like 50 fucking people each episode are going to be in Star Trek. We get it. That was the thought originally, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, also uh, follow Computer Resume, uh, which is Todd's Star Trek podcast. And uh, I've been a guest on there a few times and have expressed my love for Hoshi, who now Todd sends me Instagram photos of constantly. And I get a, I, I get excited every time. I, I just, I, 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 I want to be the friend that gives you the awkward boners, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Hoshi uh, from Star Trek Enterprise. The the wait, you're not the done good though, part, right? The good part of Star Trek Enterprise. You're, you're there's not many. You're not done though, right, Todd? I got one more, and it, it better be who I'm thinking of, or I'm gonna be mad. I believe it is. It's uh, <laughs> Mr. Paul Winfield yes. who plays Lieutenant Ed Traxler here. He, Wrath of uh, Khan. Yes, he was in Star <laughs> Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, 1982, as Captain Clark Terrell of yes. the USS Reliant. He gets the um, uh, the the ear earwig or he gets whatever the earworm. The, the yeah, scene worm. that more than any other movie scene that I've ever seen in my entire life, because <laughs> I saw it at such a young age, has just traumatized me. Like oh, that. Wow. That's the first scene that I ever remember seeing in a movie that that like gave me the creeps Ooh. was that earwig scene oh yeah star trek 2 uh <laughs> and now it's my favorite star trek movie so. well <laughs> that was not the only time he appeared in the franchise really okay he that's was, the only one i knew of he was also in an episode of star trek the next generation which hmm. it seems like everybody in this did it, some time it, it, on next gen yeah it ran for a while yeah uh <laughs> he was in season five episode two darmok which was in 1991 as the tamarian captain dathon so he's and under if, um prosthetics he's, yeah he's under a bunch of prosthetics but if you're if you are a star trek fan and you're still having problems uh identifying who that is he's the alien that picard kind of gets paired with and the universal translator breaks and all he can say is darmok and jalad at tanagra that's wow it's a real i am group moment yeah yeah very much <laughs> well it's the the tamarian's dialect is actually based on metaphor so they have to, you know, to describe this situation, wow. they're actually just, they use a different historical situation to describe it. Interesting. And it's, it's, I, I do not understand why so many Star Trek fans are virgins. <laughs> yeah. <it's so> weird. <laughs> the interesting fun fact for that episode is going to be that uh, Woodfield had trouble remembering his lines and uh, he, no, it's uh yeah, the, I, We'll we'll do a whole bonus episode. We won't do a whole bonus episode. No, <laughs> we won't. Todd will do a whole. That'll, episode we'll wait. That. We'll, we'll talk about that episode. eventually on Computer Resume Podcast, uh, where you, which you can find wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Yep, and that's everybody on Star Trek. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So with this cast assembled, it was time to start shooting finally. But uh, there was one little problem, and that was a. A guy named Dino De Laurentiis. Always uh-huh. a problem. Always a fucking problem, this guy. <laughs> you say that. No, he's <laughs> Dino De Laurentiis is great. Uh, I mean, he's he's a opinionated producer. Uh, we've talked about him lots of lots of times on the podcast, most recently in our our uh, our last series, David Cronenberg. 
Uh, he was involved in, in that a little bit. But De Laurentiis in this situation, where he comes in, and he's the producer of Conan the Barbarian, one of his biggest hits at the time. Uh, and it turned out that there was a preemptive option in uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's contract on that film, which what that means is that Schwarzenegger was contractually obligated to appear in the sequel to that film, which was Conan the Destroyer. So that meant, you know, Conan the Barbarian was a hit. We're going to roll on a sequel. We're getting Arnold back in, and he has to come back. He's contractually obligated to do so. So that means that if James Cameron wants to keep Schwarzenegger as his Terminator, which he's pretty sold on at this point, then he's going to have to wait nine months for the star to complete the new Conan movie. Now, nine months is a long time, but it's not quite long enough to make another movie. Uh, but it is long enough to, for, to take on a few other writing gigs. So Cameron starts circulating his Terminator script as a writing example. Uh, starts meeting with producers, showing them the script. This is what I can do. Uh, and what some of those producers that he met with were David Geiler and Walter Hill. Uh, longtime listeners of the podcast might recognize those names, very longtime listeners of the podcast, mm. uh, because they, uh, so they happened to be at, when he met with them, they happened to be in the early stages of developing a sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien, as we discussed on that episode way back when in our Dan O'Bannon series, uh, Guyler and Hill had produced and actually did some uncredited, but very important writing on the original Alien. Mm -hmm. uh, you, if you really want to dive into their contributions on that, I would recommend going and listening to that episode. It's a two-parter, uh, really good stuff. But this is another very strange way that Terminator is connected to Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everything's connected to Dan O'Bannon at some point, just like Roger Corbin. That's right. Uh, I'm not going to get too far into how that meeting went. We're going to save that for our Aliens episode, uh, which will be coming in a couple of weeks. But suffice to say, Cameron got the job writing the Alien sequel. And on the same day that he got hired to write the Alien sequel, he also got hired to write the sequel to First Blood, the new Rambo movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's writing Rambo 2. So during this time, he's also using that nine-month break to polish his own Terminator script, to kind of work on it more, because why not? You've got the time. Yeah. That meant that for about a three-month period in 1983, James Cameron was writing three separate scripts uh, two of which are sequels to major hits in mm -hmm. Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He talks a little bit about how, uh, yeah, that, that, that it was also, um, it was interesting how he viewed it in one interview I was reading it. There was a, he talks about, he says, there's a hiatus in production of Terminator where I had, the, 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 the interview was basically asking him about screenwriting, like how he mm -hmm. felt about screenwriting, or if that's what got him, or if that's what he's more interested in, or directing. And he was just basically saying, he's like, well, during the production of Terminator, I had this opportunity to write two other scripts, basically on the strength of the one. Uh, he says the first one, uh, he said, was The Mission, aka Rambo, the sequel to First Blood. That was what it called was called at the time. He said, they switched the name after the fact, and Sylvester Stallone changed things after the fact. He said, but I was okay. That was a given. Uh, I was a hired gun <laughs> yep. and I took it for that reason because I wanted to see what it was like to write without hoping to direct. Um, and he said, but he was like, it was not everything I wanted, but it got me involved with Walter Hill and David Glyer. Uh, and, uh, and they were, they were saying like, Walter Hill, that's a huge name. Is that validation yeah. for you? And he was like, yeah, it was absolute validation. He said, when I was uh, writing the Terminator, 
in certain scenes. I was thinking of his movie, The Tri- uh, the Driver. The Driver. Yeah. I, that's funny you that he says that because I have not heard this quote, Gary, but when I was watching The Terminator this morning, I was re-watching it, and those driving scenes, w- which are at night under these like Los Angeles streetlights, I was like, I, I immediately thought of Walter Hill's The Driver. That's awesome. Yeah, he said, he said, I was, uh, not that I was cribbing. I had only seen it once. And he said, I had a dim memory of the kinetic Ford energy that he had in this movie. Uh, but he was like, while I was riding the Terminator, the road warrior also came out and I said, okay, this is the next step. Mm -hmm. Uh, and nobody in between had come close. He said, my interpretation of Walter supporting me is that he wants that he viewed me as the next to succeed him. Uh, so that that gave me validation to go on to the next stage. I love Walter Hill, and I feel like we've brought him up a few times on the podcast here. Uh, he's a, a director that I think a lot of younger film fans might not be aware of or aware of his contributions to film. But man, I I one day on this podcast, and it might be years down the line, but we're going to do a Walter Hill series because I would love, I mean, Streets of Fire, The Warriors, like I, I absolutely want to do a Walter Hill series. I love that. Nice, game. nice. Yeah, uh, and and George Miller for that matter. Uh, yeah, know, we we yeah. were just we were just talking about that on Twitter with some folks when the the trailer for his new movie came out. But I definitely want to do George Miller one day on this show. <laughs> right. So a lot of what he what Cameron ended up writing for First Blood Part Two didn't get used in the final film. That's a story for another day. But uh, as he mentioned in that quote. It was Sylvester Stallone taking things over and being Sylvester Stallone. Uh, and he was, Cameron was also only able to kind of finish the first two acts of the Alien sequel before it was time to dive into shooting the Terminator. So he finishes those. We'll get into how he gets back involved in the Alien sequel on our next episode. But for now, that's passed. Those nine months have passed. We've got Arnold Schwarzenegger once again available, and it's time to start working on the film. Now, we mentioned this is a $6 million budget. $6 million, even by early 1980s standards, is still pretty small for a script as ambitious as Cameron's. Uh, uh, you know, a script that's got sequences set in, an, in a post-apocalyptic future where there are giant robots and giant tanks, like futuristic tanks and futuristic helicopter ship things. You know, like it's, it's a lot for a, a $6 million movie. And there were going to be a lot of special effects, not just in those scenes, but prosthetic effects. You've got a, you know, he wanted to have a, he was envisioning a full-sized robotic endoskeleton uh, for the end of the movie. He was envisioning human prosthetics that were convincing enough that he could linger on them in close-up, like in the scene where the injured Terminator has to perform surgery on his own face. You know, mm-hmm. he wanted, he knew how he wanted to shoot these. Now, uh, he had an idea of who he wanted to use to do these. And it was a guy, you guys have heard his name if you've been listening to the show for a while, Dick Smith. Uh, I'm somewhat of a Dick Smith myself. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So Dick Smith, uh, if you've been listening to the show, you might remember this, but if if it's your first time listening, uh, Dick Smith was uh, a, a special effects legend that worked on The Godfather and The Exorcist. And uh, more recently that we've we've discussed here on the show, he worked on David Cronenberg's scanners and did special effects for that. And in fact, invented special effects techniques that were used specifically for that. 
So James Cameron knows this guy, knows that he's a legend. He wants this guy to do the Terminator. He offers him the job and Dick Smith turns it down. Uh, he doesn't turn it down because <laughs> he, he doesn't like think the script sucks. He doesn't think uh, he, it's not because of scheduling or anything like that. It's basically Dick Smith. His, his reason was that he didn't think he could do it. He, th- he thought that this was out of his skill set. He's like, I'm a makeup artist. I can do bladder work, you know, that kind of special effect. But mm. I do prosthetics. Uh, I don't build animatronic robots. That's not my thing. It's not what I do. So he was turning it down, not because he didn't have faith in the project, just because he thought that somebody else could do a better job than him. And he suggested his friend, Stan Winston. Uh-huh. Now, when you talk about legends of the makeup effects industry, there are a few names that often come up. Dick Smith is one of those. Rick Baker's one of those who we've talked about here on the show. Tom Savini, who we did an entire series on. Greg Nicotero, Rob Bottin. And Stan Winston is one of those names that will always be near the top when you're having that discussion. Absolutely. If you look at his career, he'd go on to work on stuff like Predator, uh, Edward Scissorhands, Jurassic Park. I mean, he created the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Uh, He's also, he didn't direct a lot of movies, but he did Pumpkinhead, which I love, which stars the great Lance Hendrickson. Uh, It's a great movie. I I, I really love Pumpkinhead. Uh, (laughs) And we've already talked about him here on the podcast because of his work on Dead and Buried. That was back in our Dan O'Bannon series. Uh, Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. He created the the goofy, fun-looking aliens and that, which I are the best part of that movie, I think. (laughs) Uh, In fact, when he was approached about the Terminator, he he had just finished Dead and Buried. And he had also recently received his first of many, many, many Oscar nominations for his makeup work on Alan on an Alan Arkish film called Heartbeeps. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Heartbeeps. Alan Arkish is the uh, another Roger Corman alum. He directed Rock and Roll High School, uh, and Heartbeeps stars. Andy Kaufman as a robot. It's a very strange movie. Oh, wow. That I, that I, I, don't, I haven't seen it since like the 90s when I rented it, you know, on VHS, like the early 90s, <laughs> uh, mid 90s, whenever I, I was, you know, renting stuff every day. Uh, I don't remember it being that good, but the makeup effects were really good. So he got nominated for an Oscar for those. Uh, he lost to Rick Baker for American Werewolf in London, which fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're gonna lose, lose to Rick Baker. We we talk a little bit about like Cameron having this like uh, his left and right hemisphere of his brain, like this this part of uh, uh, the we art talk, and the science, the art and the science, like yeah. coming together. And it's pretty interesting because like uh, uh, I definitely was reading stuff. Uh, I, I made a note of one here that just like his view of the writing process. I had noted it as and. Uh, uh, because I thought it was like interesting for like people if they were going to write science fiction screenplays. He says, I wrote the script with a strategy in mind, knowing the movie would be in competition with big FX films. Uh, for X number of special effects, you must spend X number of dollars at the threshold. Below that, you'll be showing people things they don't want to see. The audience has become visually educated and sophisticated and even a bit jaded by the big guys. My strategy was not to do special effects from beginning to end, The story is set in Los Angeles, 1984, and the main character is the girl next door. Everything plays out from beginning to end against an everyday backdrop. I think when a film is under consideration for production, the first and foremost question is, does it work dramatically? If it doesn't, it will never get to the point of people worrying about how much it costs. Uh, Writers should know enough about special effects to be able to stay away from them. Worst thing you can ever do is overburden a script with effects, which will scare people away. On the other hand, 
you must have something visually interesting. And and I bring was that, that up. was that what is, was that quote before or after Avatar? <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> it's so interesting because it's like I I, I didn't want to say it, but now that you've said that, I was going to say the hypocritical thing about James Cameron. <laughs> that I see is I one hundred percent copied that quote, and at the same time, even with Terminator, he talks about and and I've got one for later with him talking about this, like about the reactions from when the movie came out. But it's essentially about how these fucking people didn't know what I was going to bring them. Like (laughs) they, they, they're used to people teasing them with shit that they're not actually going to see. And like, I'm going to show it to you. Like I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. uh, Well, I think the way that he, he writes this, he wrote the script to the Terminator with the effects in mind. Uh, I I mentioned earlier that I've been watching his masterclass. I highly recommend it. If you, if you feel like splurging on something, the the masterclass, uh, I, I got myself a, subscription to it because there's james cameron there's martin scorsese david lynch if some of my favorite directors are going to teach me how to make movies even if i don't really have any aspirations to make movies it still makes me helps me to understand the way movies are made Mm. Uh, and james cameron's is really good and he does there there's a class on there where he talks about filmmaking for a low budget and he writes he wrote the Terminator knowing that he wasn't going to have a lot of money for the special effects. That's why he said it in modern day. He said it in Los Angeles. He knew that he could shoot on location because it's all, a lot of it's out on the streets. You know, he's uh, he doesn't have to build sets. He can save his money for the effects that he was going to include. Most of which come at the either the end of the film or in the flash. Well, not flashback, but flash forward to the to the future. How about this? Maybe it's just my mind just like uh, wreaking havoc because we're doing such a long ass episode on the Terminator, but I love this movie. But what if, what if it's that the exact reverse happens on Avatar? And I know this is a discussion for Avatar, but what if it's like, I'll take a story that has been tried and true and I already know the stories there. So now I can fuck around in the effects. Yeah. Because we've got the dramatic and, and show, and show them something they've show. never seen before. <laughs> yeah. Yep. We, we already know the drama works. Yeah. So now let's do like as much crazy shit as we can do visually. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so Cameron and Winston, they meet about the special effects. Uh, obviously, the budget's a point of conversation, but they instantly clicked. Uh, they saw like-minded individuals in each other. They both saw someone that was very artistic, very intelligent, and a little bit crazy. It's basically the way that, the way that they describe it. Uh, they 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 were bros. They had a bromance, just like Cameron and Arnold had a bromance, just like Cameron and Bill Paxton had a bromance. You know, like he's he's making buddies left and right here. Him and Lance Hendrickson. He's he's a uh, you know for all the talk about James Cameron kind of being a dick on the set, uh, he's got a lot of buddies. You know, like yeah. uh, and this, this may or may not have to anything to do with your your pockets, but Mr. Cameron, if you're listening right now and you need a new friend. I am also here. <laughs> I would like to offer my services as your friend. <laughs> I would like to be buddies with you. <laughs> uh, but Winston, you know, he read Cameron's script and he was kind of looking for a challenge. He wanted to do something a little bit more than what he had done, which had mostly been prosthetic work. He wanted to move a little bit further than that. And Cameron's script provided the challenge that he was looking for. Now, Usually when you talk about a special effects guy on a movie, when you bring in a Rick Baker, you have Rick Baker design. He Rick Baker reads the script, 
Rick Baker reads about the flesh television that you've written in your Videodrome script, and then he <laughs> visualizes what that's going to actually look like based on the script's description. That's how that usually works. Now, in the case of The Terminator, normally that would be Stan Winston reading the script and coming up with the visual look of The Terminator based on how it's described in James Cameron's screenplay, right? But... Cameron, as we've said, it was a, an accomplished visual artist, and he had already created several detailed drawings of what he thought the cyborg should look like, uh, which began back in that night in Rome when he was having his fever dream and started furiously sketching this dream out on the hotel stationery. He knew what he wanted this thing to look like. So they were, San Winston's job was basically to refine this into something that could be created physically. Mm. So him and uh, Cameron, they kind of go back and forth on this design, you know, tweak it here and there. And they refine it to a point where the final look of it looks almost identical to Cameron's initial drawing. Look up the drawing that James Cameron did, because uh, it's very easy to find of that Terminator. It's a pencil sketch of the Terminator with a kitchen knife in its hand. It's just the torso. And it looks like the Terminator. I mean, it really does. Wow. So Stan Winston basically had to turn that into a 3D reality. They had to build it. Now, the thing is, you can because you could see the robot skeleton, because you can see through it in parts and because it's so thin in parts, you couldn't do like man in rubber suit. That wasn't going to work. Uh, this was going to have to be a full-size puppet. So they built a full-sized Terminator puppet, life-sized. Uh, it took about seven artists working continuously for six months to build this puppet. Uh, they molded it in clay and then plaster and then urethane. Then the mold was cast in epoxy and fiberglass and reinforced with steel ribbing. And then the whole thing was just stressed and aged to give it kind of a worn in look. Uh, and in the end, this puppet weighed over a hundred pounds. Uh, wow. this, this thing. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Now, obviously there are also scenes where, it's stop motion, like where you can see the full body all in mm -hmm. one frame. It's stop motion, uh, which, you know, has aged like stop motion normally does. You can tell it's stop motion, but it's part of the charm of the effect in the Terminator, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but the, the scenes where you see the close up of him, like coming after Sarah Connor and Kyle Reese at the end, that's the puppet. That's a full size, man sized endoskeleton. That's pretty rad. Yeah. That's pretty <laughs> cool. Uh, so we also mentioned the, um, the Terminator surgery scene a few mm. minutes ago, you know, that that's what, when I think of the Terminator, there are a handful of major set pieces that I think about uh, that like always stand out in my mind. One of them is the, uh, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, but the assault on the, the, the night, the nightclub, mm -hmm. uh, there's the police station. There are the future scenes. There's the surgery scene that I'm about to talk about. And there is um, there's the, the end of the movie where the, the, the endoskeleton comes out. That's those are kind of like the major set pieces of this, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, so for this surgery scene, Winston sculpted a he had to make a life size copy of Schwarzenegger's face. There was no other way to do this. He made a life size copy of Schwarzenegger's face in various poses using silicone, clay and plaster. Uh, and then they had to basically film the scene in a way that they could cut back and forth between Arnold and, and this thing. Cause not only do you have the face, you know, he's missing an eye at that point or he, he carves out his eye, you know, and obviously that's a fake head. And the way they did that is so they've, they've got the puppet, they've got this, this head that looks like Schwarzenegger and it's animatronic. And you've got a hand here, uh, like above one eye holding the 
uh, what is it called? An exacto knife. Yeah. The other hand holding the eye kind of apart so that he can work the surgery. And one of those hands was Arnold Schwarzenegger's. The other one was some other random crew member because they had two guys <laughs> standing. They basically framed it to where you can see the, the face. You can see the hands coming in. But only, but one of those was not Arnold's because he, because he had to stand to the side of the frame. <laughs> so the one holding the eye was Arnold's. The one cutting was someone else's that kind of had a hand that looked a little bit like Arnold's. But you can't tell in the movie. I mean, that's movie magic, I guess. You know, it, yeah. it looks, and yes, it looks a little fake now. But it's for a 1984 I, I, man. It's pretty damn good. It's pretty, I wanted to throw in that, like, as a kid watching this movie, that scene has always, especially him, like, fucking pulling his eyeball out with a scalpel. Um, all of that stuff like still affects me to this day. I think I have yeah. a well, you've got uh, an eyeball thing. I was yeah, about yeah. to say, I think it's still, I think this may be the origin of an eyeball thing. It's yeah. just like seeing him do that. Um, it worked on me, so it's hard to appreciate just like for like when you haven't seen the thing before, or like haven't seen beyond that before. Yeah, uh, how realistic it feels seeing it for the first time. Yeah, um. I was watching it this time and thinking like, okay, it's dated. Like you can, you can totally see it, but I think it's fine. Like, I think, I think like it's fine said, too. It's, it's part of the charm it's a good of effect. the thing. Um, it still works pretty well. And uh, I don't know, like it, it, it just, uh, it, I, I really appreciate a lot of the effects in this movie. And, uh, and, and uh, even this time around, I was reading about how like, uh, uh, if you're wondering, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger forgot to take his make off makeup off one day and went and ordered food afterwards. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> uh, and like freaked out the fucking people at the hotel yeah. restaurant when he walked in. <laughs> like half his face is melted off. I love and, that. Uh, and so it it did work. Yeah. Uh, for like, yeah, like yeah, the effect of, yeah um, <laughs> well i also love tech noir basically too just for what it's worth uh just to mention it in there um you know we, we think about movies like blade runner that's 100 percent what james cameron was thinking about there um like he was trying to uh, they, they literally had to turn people away thinking that it was a legit nightclub like at the time nice. they were like making this thing but <laughs> yeah. like it was uh it was made like considerably the like, considering like blade runner and like just having that vibe yeah. of you know that sort of thing i thought that was kind of cool they they did mm -hmm. a lot of guerrilla style filmmaking especially towards this. the end towards the end they had to pick up some shots where it was like like the well, the very last scene was a gorilla style with with uh, Sarah Connor and the Jeep at the end. Yeah, uh, but they yeah. had a few pickup shots where it was like James Cameron and like four other people, and James Cameron's holding the camera himself. And you know that's just coming from that Roger Corman school of filmmaking. Just get the shot, however you can get the shot. Yeah, yeah you know? I just uh, appreciate that. Like he he went through a lot. To, he still like, went very like be in, independent B movie. That's what this is. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. He, you don't think about it, but at, because of what it has spawned, but at the time, like this is a small little dirty scuzzy B movie. It really, it, it happens to be an incredibly well-made one, but that's what it is. Now, now going back to that, that um, surgery scene, there's another cool bit of, um, of special effects in that, because not only is he doing surgery on his eye, which by the way, in that scene where it is Arnold, you see him bring up a, um, like a the exacto knife to his eye to start cutting it, and you can't right. see the you can't see the blade because it's on the other side of his nose. Uh, but if you slow it down, and in that master class, James Cameron slows the scene down to show you this. The exacto blade doesn't have a blade on. It. I thought uh, I caught that. I was yeah. like, 
he's like, now, he's like, well, if you did it now, you would, of course, CGI a blade on, but we couldn't do that at the time. And we weren't going to ask Arnold to put a, an exacto blade in his eye. So, you know, so, so they had to like, they had, it's, it's quick enough to where you can't see it unless you're really looking for it. Uh, but yeah, it, but the other part of that scene I wanted to mention was he's doing surgery on his arm as well. You know, he's been injured and the way that scene is done is they have Arnold sit down at a table, put his hand down and they establish it where you see the whole table. So you can see that there's not like a hole in it or anything like that. Right. He puts mm-hmm. his hand down and then in the next shot, Arnold's arm is hidden, you know, mm-hmm. it's and they've got a fake arm. They've got a fake arm laying on the table. There's a puppeteer under the table who's using his hand to manipulate the hand. And then they've got a nut, they've got wires running from this arm off screen where another puppeteer is using animatronics to make the insides of the arm move. Uh, it's really cool. And they sketched that out on a storyboard. Now, one thing we talked about in our David Cronenberg series is how much he hates storyboards. Mm. James Cameron is the opposite. James Cameron storyboards the shit out of everything because he's using a lot of effects and he knows, especially coming from that Roger Corman background, he's like, if we map this out, we'll be able to see exactly where every dime is going. So he storyboards everything. He, He knows the movie in his head before he ever steps foot on a set. Wow. Uh, so it's just, it's it's just kind of cool doing these two series back to back, seeing very different approaches to filmmaking. I mean, I mean, we haven't even we haven't even like dipped into time travel, but otherwise, I will say that like James Cameron seems to have like so much thought put into mm-hmm. every fucking thing. I don't, did you see the stuff about like uh, in the original script too? He had even had a thing about like Sarah Connor had like a figure skating injury. Uh-uh. Uh, yeah, like she had a figure skating injury. Uh, that there was like going to be a note about on like one of the readouts. And so she would have surgical pins like in her knee or something. And so the Terminator would go in and each Sarah Connor that he kills, he's like hacking open the leg of the person <laughs> fucking cool. to look nice. for the pins because he just knew that like <laughs> that's how you could identify the proper Sarah Connor was like oh, these wow. surgical wow. pins. That's funny. I, I kind of love that. That kind of would have worked out because once they started filming, as Linda Hamilton, like a week before filming, she actually sprained her ankle, like severely sprained her ankle. So that could have actually worked out because she would have had a limp. Right. Possibly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they, they ended up having to uh, basically rearrange the entire production schedule so that her running scenes would be filmed as late into the shoot as possible. Uh, and then even after the delay, she had to have her ankle taped every day and was reportedly in a great deal of pain for most of the filming of the Terminator. And you got to think at at this point, but they couldn't let that stop them, right? So this movie started shooting in March of 1984. They were talking to Arnold in 1982. There have been two years of development from the time that they started working on this to the time that they actually filmed. And part of that is because Arnold was unavailable for the better part of a year because mm-hmm. he had to go back and shoot the other Conan movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so they couldn't let Linda Hamilton getting a sprained ankle really stop them. They had to kind of work around it. Uh, that There was a lot of necessity on this film because of the way they were having to shoot, because it was a low budget. There's a lot of night scenes. Uh, most of the movie is at night, which the producers were at Orion. They were like, can we maybe just 
like do some daytime stuff because it's cheaper. And Cameron was adamant that this needs to be filmed at night. That was the vibe he was going for. And I think he's right. Uh, I think it works for this film. There's a lot of daytime stuff in Terminator too. Uh, but I think that the, the nighttime stuff really works for what he's going for here, but it also meant that they're shooting overnight. So they're constantly fighting the clock, trying to get in as many shots as possible before the sun comes up, mm. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not an easy shoot. And James Cameron this is something I think we'll probably see time and time again. Uh, he's a very hands-on director. Uh, it's something that he worked uh, again. It's something that he learned working for Corman uh, on a Corman set. If something needs to be done, if a light needs to be moved from here to here, you don't go find another guy to do it. You just move the fucking light. That's what you do on a Roger Corman set. Yeah. So James Cameron's used to just doing things himself. Something needs to be done. He's going to do it. He's not going to go find somebody in another department to do it. He's just going to do it. Uh, so he developed this habit of doing anything and everything needed on set. In fact, it's something he does through his whole career. By the time Avatar comes around, he's operating the camera. He's editing the footage. He's mixing the sound. Like he's a regular Robert Rodriguez on a $200 million budget. By the time right. Avatar comes around, uh, he is capable of doing nearly every technical job on set because a lot of these he's done before during his career. He's as good at doing any of these things as anyone in those departments, and he knows that he can do that. And he's going to do it. And sometimes he even does things he probably shouldn't have. Uh, Schwarzenegger tells a story about the Terminator, uh, about the filming of the Terminator, where James Cameron is, is demonstrating how he wants Arnold to ride on the motorcycle and kind of spin it around, doing like a 180, which is something that probably should have been demonstrated by, I don't know, a stunt team, the stunt coordinator, but Cameron didn't want to wait on a stunt coordinator. So he hops on the fucking motorcycle and does it himself Goes, Hey, this is how you want to do it. And he does it. And he could have gotten killed, you know, but that's just, that's just who James Cameron is, I guess. That's so uh, great. And honest, if we're being honest, I think that's probably Cameron's machismo at play. Uh, Cameron is, you know, we kind of joked about this earlier. Yes. He's an artist. He's an intellectual, but he's also very much like, I'm a man's man. You know, I'm an adventurer. I, I ride motorcycles and I go deep sea diving. Yeah. <laughs> so I well, think he that... reminds me of like what, like some music producers would probably be like too. Like they're like, uh, if you watch Wayne's world too, where like, uh, Christopher Walken plays the music producer. And I always think of, uh, who's the big bearded guy. I forget his name. The music, producer. Rick Rubin, Rick Rubin. God, I yeah. couldn't think of his name, but you know, like he can play like every fucking instrument right, in yeah. the building and like he can kill it. But like in Wayne's world too, where like the band, like Tia Carreras, like bands having trouble, like the guys trying to get the solo and Christopher Walken, like takes the guitar. It's like, no, it'll be like this. And like, just like whales on a solo. Right. <laughs> so like, that's what you're supposed to do. It gives it back to him. <laughs> and you're like, Jesus, who is this guy? I feel like Cameron's like that's James Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Cause even, you know, I mentioned that quote earlier where he was talking about, uh, you know, like early on in his career, like you can take advantage, you get gonzo filmmaking, you get like a mentality of like, you just got to go all in and later on you got to delegate, but he, that same interview later on talks about like how he feels like in certain movies around the time he starts to see filmmakers delegate too much and uh they're not in control of the nuances that make their film special so like he he does talk about this a lot uh that he believes like him controlling certain things like in a hands-on approach give it texture that other filmmakers don't have uh he says uh people can smell 
when something is too glossy or too packaged, they like underdogs. And so him being in control and building every aspect like makes a difference. It makes it an underdog movie for a production standpoint that mm-hmm. he's like hands-on so much on some of his stuff. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about the, the, the filming of the Terminator, I, I do want to mention a couple other scenes. Uh, there's the future war sequence. It's a little dated. It does feel a little the most it feels more low budget than anything else in the movie but i still really like the look of it uh that's cameron using every technique at his disposal they're making models they're doing rear rear projection uh and it's pretty impressive because there's no this 1984 cgi does not exist uh he has no that's not an option so they have to do this everything the old-fashioned way and i love the look of the future war stuff because of that uh i also want to mention the the tech noir scene, which is maybe my favorite sequence in the whole movie, just from a filmmaking standpoint, that dance club scene. Uh, The way that that scene is constructed is like, you can tell James Cameron just knows what he's doing. Uh, He's just, he just knows how to construct a scene uh, because that scene, the way that it builds it, first of all, it takes place at a perfect time in the film because the, the beginning of the film, you're following three separate storylines. You're following Sarah Connor, you're following Kyle Reese, and you're following the Terminator. That dance club scene is when all three of those converge in one place. And at this point in the film, you don't know who Kyle Reese is. You don't know that he's the good guy. He could very well be another bad guy, which is what Sarah Connor thinks, because she sees him kind of stalking her almost so there's a lot of danger in the scene because of that but the way that it's edited it it kind of slowly moves into slow motion where she realizes she sees kyle reese across the bar uh and then the terminator comes in and you don't really know what's going on as a viewer uh i'd say as a viewer in 1984 because you've never seen this movie right you don't know what's going on it's an expertly edited scene uh so i have to also mention Mark Goldblatt. Mark Goldblatt's the editor on this. We've talked about Mark Goldblatt here on the show before. Uh, He does a lot of stuff for James Cameron, but he also did a lot of stuff for Paul Verhoeven. He did Starship Troopers. He did Showgirls. uh, He did Hollow Man. uh, He did, I mean, he did The Last Boy Scout, if we want to go back to our Shane Black series. Uh, He's worked with Joe Dante on Piranha, on The Howling, uh, he, he did a uh, humanoids from the deep for Roger Corman. He did Rambo too. <laughs> he, you know, he did, he's done a lot of Michael Bay movies. He is like one of the best editors to ever work in the business. Wow. Mark Goldblatt. Uh, he's a director too. I think he directed the, um, he's not as good of a director, honestly, as he is a, an editor. Cause I think he directed Punisher movie with Dolph Lundgren, oh. <laughs> but he also directed <laughs> dead heat, which is not exactly a good movie, but it's a movie that I very much enjoy dead heat with Joe Piscopo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really good. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go watch the Joe Bob version from last season. It's really good. Uh, <laughs> but you know, so, but Mark Goldblatt as an editor is incredible. And the, the way that he does that sequence, I think, is really outstanding. It's it's really, really good. So even though James Cameron conceptualized it, uh, the editor is the one who brought that sequence to life. So we have to give props where they're due, I think. Nice. Uh, while we're giving props where they're due, I think we have to mention Brad Fidel. 
the guy who composed the score, uh, an iconic score. We've already mentioned it on the show uh, because I think we all love that score so much. Uh, Brad Fidel had mostly done television stuff before this. He'd done a couple of small indie films, but it was really his work on this film that set his career in motion. Uh, He had, uh, he, he, they didn't want to give him the job at first because he didn't have any experience, but he sent them kind of some ideas of some music he had composed. Uh, this is the direction I think we should go in. And they liked it and they thought it would work with the film. Uh, his career later on, he would do stuff like, you know, Fright Night, Serpent of the Rainbow, uh, Blue Steel, which is a great movie from uh, James, uh, one of James Cameron's ex-wives directed that movie. <laughs> um, and Johnny Mnemonic, nice. which is not a great movie, but I like it. Yeah, <laughs> Dolph Lundgren, you know. Uh, yeah, another another Dolph Lundgren mentioned twice in two minutes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's Jesus. Terminator's done. Filming's done. Editing's done. Uh, and Cameron watches the final film, and he's very happy with the end result. He he thinks he created the movie he wanted to create, but the folks at Hori- uh, at Orion were not as confident in it. Uh, they kind of viewed this as just another low budget genre film which they released a lot of orion did uh they released a lot of low budget genre films and made them a lot of money uh but they thought this was another one that they would throw out in theaters and make a little bit of money and it'd be gone in a couple of weeks right and it honestly seems like a couple of the people who were making the movie a couple of the film stars kind of felt that way too because both linda hamilton and arnold schwarzenegger have gone on record as not having a whole lot of faith in the film before they made it uh, there's a famous story that goes around a lot of Arnold being interviewed on the set of Conan the Destroyer and in an interview saw him grab a pair of like motorcycle boots that he was about to change into to try on. Uh, and they asked what they were for. And his reply was that they were for this little shit movie I'm doing. <laughs> of course, that movie was the Terminator. <laughs> so, so nice. even though, you know, he liked James Cameron, but he didn't see this as like a big stepping stone in his career uh, that obviously it would end up being. So Orion, you know, they're kind of worried that the critics would trash it. They didn't really see what they had on their hands. So they only had a single press screening for the film. And what little money they actually spent on advertising, they did so like in the week before the film's release. There wasn't like a big uh, promotional push for this movie. But the critics who did get to see it on those early reviews and ones who got to see it later on after it had come out and become a hit seemed to really love it. Uh, the Los Angeles Times said it was a uh, a crackling thriller full of all sorts of gory treats, which is just a, a review that I enjoy. <laughs> I just like that quote. <laughs> uh, Time Magazine actually named it one of their top 10 films of the year at the end of 1984, which nice. is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, Janet Maslin, who uh, was a longtime critic for the New York Times, and one of my favorite quotes from a review of the film said that, this is a monster movie and the role of the monster fits Mr. Schwarzenegger just fine. I just like that quote a lot uh, because I think they also kind of see, I think that she saw exactly what kind of movie this really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm guessing Gary, that even though this movie is legendary, that there might be a few reviewers out there who didn't see it as so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as per usual, even though the Terminator never sleeps, there's always going to be somebody that needs to take a nap. <laughs> Um, I, I do want to mention, though, that uh, in regards to the gore, like James Cameron, like takes exception to that. He, he keeps saying, like, in, in uh, interviews that like it's a, a gun and run, a shoot 'em up, 
Many yeah, people get there's really not a lot killed, of gore, <laughs> but there isn't much gore. The violence is never rubbed in your face. It's done off screen and used for dramatic effect. Uh, he says, I think the audience will realize that all this violence is directed at an unkillable machine, not a man. Most of the gore is on the Terminator. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, but but going back to the effects, too, real quick. I, one of the things I loved about what he said that he was proud of is the uh, the reviews like watching people uh, in the theaters because um, he said uh, Orion compressed all their ad money into the week before release and only did like one preview. He said people went in thinking this is going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think I mentioned this before, but as Dirty Harry, maybe with the sci-fi edge to it, he said they had no concept of where the road was really going to take them. And that's great because to me, that's what a movie really is. You sit down and it takes you somewhere. The best is if it could take you beyond where you thought you were going to go. And in a way that is not so surprising or, or in a way that is not so surprising that you don't buy it. If you go back and look the final version of the robot and Terminator, he's like, we totally prepared for it the whole time. There's this scene where the Terminator repairs his eye. You see the mechanism in his arm, you know, it was there the whole time, but people are conditioned to not getting what they want in the movies to always think, thinking the filmmaker is going to cheat them. And that, he's just describing a fantastic machine. You're not really going to see it. And he said at our one count on one preview, the audience was very young. He said 12 to 18 year olds in the whole thing. And they were hyper. They were screaming. They were ripping the wallpaper off the walls. And I thought there's no way they're going to sit quietly through long character scenes like the one in the culvert. Uh, but he's like, they set, they set through it all in full attention. Uh, he said, my interpretation is that the overall sense of dread of this character constantly coming back is so well established. They might have been thinking the Terminator was going to walk in while Sarah and Kyle are talking, but at least they knew it had been established that what they said would have some bearing on the action. He was like really proud of like seeing he's like, these are all young people watching this movie and they're like super into this movie, the whole thing, the whole time. And he's like, and then we give them what they don't expect, like that which is the actual thing like on screen. And uh, I just uh, always love that. Uh, or when I was reading through stuff, I love that quote from him. Anyway, like he said, uh, there's a uh, John three sixteen here on IMDb gave it one out of five stars. Uh, he says, uh, why they have to ruin good action sci-fi movie with porn. Soft <laughs> guy named <laughs> Fucking guy named John 316 would say that. <laughs> Soft to near hardcore porn. This movie has two sex scenes. Uh, by the way, this guy's spelling, I can't even describe to you. Like he spells scenes, S-E-A-N-S. It has two Sean's. sex Sean's. Uh, one Sarah, S-E-R-A. Uh, one Sarah Connor roommate and boyfriend having sex. You only see it from shoulder up, but there is sexual action going on. Another is Sarah and Kyle, who he, by the way, spells C-Y-L-E. Kyle has is, is this satire? Are we sure this is not satire? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> having sex, you see her breasts and thrusting and grunting. And in another scene, you see Arnold Schwarzenegger totally nude. Never show his crotch, but everything else shown. And in another scene, you see Kyle... Uh, this time he just spelled out full, full out cycle. And the other scene, he sees cycle <laughs> and most of his body dude. The only thing they don't show is his crotch. P.S. Show Terminator pulls a guy's heart out. Wish there was a true PG version with no nudity or sex. Sean's 
or hearts being pulled out. I don't recommend for kids. Porn motivates rap and other sexual assault and cheating. I, I assume it means rape. I assume but... it means rape and not, not the music <laughs> genre. <laughs> I recommend always check movie with movie guide or other websites to find out of things you don't want to see buying. Well, to be fair, that's good advice. Well, it's... <laughs> Oh God, that guy! Uh, I don't think he's ever seen porn. Honestly, not sure he ever saw a boob before this movie. <laughs> you might be right. Uh, oh, Anthony boy. says uh, uh, his review is titled "Terminated." Uh, the review says, "Oh please, the only good thing about this movie is Linda Hamilton's mullet." <laughs> it's the uh, most dated thing of, in the whole movie, honestly. Yeah, yeah. That, her hair dates this movie more than anything else. I don't know. I, the hair, maybe that moped, definitely. <laughs> I don't know. You don't live. You don't live in my neighborhood. There's a lot of those mopeds. <laughs> a lot of DUIs. Movie <laughs> expert 005 uh, says waste of time and James Cameron the thief. Most movies from James Cameron are stealing from other movies. Terminator is stealing from Westworld. Gunslinger. Many action scenes from Terminator 2 are stealing from Robocop. Abyss is only underwater, but it's stealing from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. True Lies is stealing from La Totale. Uh, Avatar is stealing from Dances with Wolves or Pocahontas. Titanic is stealing from an actor member. Aliens is stealing from the original Alien. And Alita Battle Angel is stealing from iRobot with Will Smith. I don't like James Cameron. He is an antichrist. And all of James <laughs> Cameron movies are very boring. And long. That sounds like a some anti-James Cameron propaganda there. He didn't even Ooh. direct Elite Battle Angel. Although that movie that movie rules. Uh the title of this review is He'll Not Be Back on My Screen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Points for that, honestly. <laughs> All right. Points this film that. is really bad and badly aged, not for people who like visual effects or a strong plot, bad editing, bad effects, terrible script, characters you don't care for. This film is aged like a dog turd in a milky basket. <laughs> a milky basket. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I think Wallace and Gromit did it better. Did they do an, a Terminator? I don't know. I'd like to see that. Mm. I like their werewolf movie. All right. Patrick Starr says uh, one star. His name's Patrick Starr. He gives it one star. Uh, literally rips off Back to the Future. Wow, a movie that came out three years later. Or one year later. Delcha <laughs> uh, Man says, uh, just go back to the time John Connor was a baby, you dumb shit. <laughs> All right. You're not, you're not that's, wrong. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Babies are very slow. <laughs> Peter Ebert, who I seem to read the related to robert says, yes roger's uh, cousin gave it one star says uh, genuinely one of the worst movies ever made infinite number of plot holes aside from the acting being piss poor makeup offensively bad and sex scene is so devoid of passion that i'm contemplating a pivot to volcel um i don't what is that voluntary celibacy oh i didn't know what that meant okay <laughs> it's the opposite of incel which is involuntary celibacy Gotcha. I'm dumbfounded how this movie is both so influential and popular. It downright sucks. That's what Peter Ebert says. Shut up, Peter. Uh, Eve says, Arnie said, I'll be back. And I thought, I hope the fuck not. Flip <laughs> <laughs> flap is the final one who says the guy falling in love with the photo scared me the most. <laughs> 
that it? That's it. All right. So that's all the, the people in movie reviews. <laughs> <laughs> when the film premiered on October 26, 1984, audiences quickly proved the folks at Orion wrong. Uh, also quickly proved these goobers wrong, who Gary was just reading <laughs> reviews of. Uh, the movie was very popular. It earned $4 million its opening week. That made it number one at the box office. It would continue its reign at number one the following week. And all in all, the film would end up uh, grossing $78 million worldwide. Remember, that's on a $6 million budget. Wow. That's a, that's a hell of a profit. Yeah. Uh, and this is, again, the first of many times that Hollywood would doubt James Cameron only to have his project become a massive success. Uh, if the film was a hit at the box office, though, it was an even bigger hit on home video. Remember, this was like the golden age of VHS. And over the years, it has also begun to be considered a classic, even if I think nowadays it's kind of overshadowed by uh, its sequels, especially Terminator 2. I feel like a lot of people overlook this one because of Terminator 2, but this movie I think does deserve to be discussed uh, as an important film. I I really think so. I think the Terminator is one of those movies that sort of transcends its genre because of the sheer talent of its filmmaker. You know, this was considered by nearly everyone involved in its creation, except for Cameron, uh, to be just another cheap little B movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have to imagine a lot of folks who went to see it, critics and audiences, went in thinking kind of the same thing. Uh, You know, we are all, we're all similar ages, the three of us. We're all, and Todd, what are you, 37, 38? I'm 38, 38. And me and Gary are are 40. So we're all close to the same age. Uh, And we're at an age where the Terminator, not the film, just the character itself has always been around. Yeah, basically. I mean, I was three years old when this movie came out. Uh, So uh, the Terminator has always existed. It's always been around. I think most of us have, we're probably even introduced to the character through Terminator 2 before ever seeing the first. I know that's the case with mm-hmm. me. I definitely saw Terminator 2 first. So we've always kind of known the character as this, this sort of pop culture icon. But imagine it's 1984 and you're going to see this movie and you have no expectations. Uh, you're just at the movies for what you think is going to be this fun little gritty sci-fi action movie. And what you get instead is an incredibly well-made, uh, intense thriller that's meticulously constructed with a kind of pretty complex mind fuck of a plot that you're not used to seeing in these little movies. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the plot though, this is probably the point where we need to pause and allow Gary to probably rant about the time travel stuff in this movie. <laughs> I, I know <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> well, Fire it up, Gary, go for it. No, I mean, I just, I, you know, I mentioned the one review, obviously this like, why not, why not go here? I mean, there were reviews that I saw that people were like, why not go, uh, if you know that it doesn't work, which you would immediately, um, then why not send it back 10 years before that or 10 years before that, or maybe to well, Kyle Reese, grandparents or Kyle Reese doesn't have a way to communicate with the future to tell you, them. No, right? I mean, you, you would, so they you would think, know immediately because when they send Kyle Reese, if the machines don't just disappear, then they know that it hasn't worked. Yeah. Or if, if the war is still going on, the machines should logically know that it didn't work. No. Uh, there's a lot of paradoxes in this that yeah. I mean, honestly, <laughs> like if, if Kyle Reese succeeded, then he would never be sent back. 
he would, would never be, no be sent back. Yeah, yeah. John Connor would never <laughs> be born or whatever. Maybe he well, born, he would be but... born. Well, I don't know. I know he wouldn't be born. Well, oh, man, even Jennifer this time around, we were watching it. It was like, well, what if the Terminator, like, what you know, like, what if he kills Kyle Reese before he has sex with Sarah Connor? Then I'm like, the John Connor doesn't exist. Yeah, said Kyle Reese back, who can't die before impregnating <laughs> Sarah Connor. Exactly. None of this. Because works. if he doesn't <laughs> impregnate Sarah Connor, then John Connor doesn't send him back. Right. So right. it just to impregnate Sarah Connor. It's a, it's a it's a loop. The universe it's implodes. A, it doesn't make any sense. You're right. But the only people the only people that get this shit right are I mean the obviously Pri- like Marvel Primer. now is kind of <laughs> doing all right with it because you're just like oh there's a million multiverses. Yeah, yeah. it's just like all right. Well, so it's well Kyle Reese does say that he comes from a possible future. And that that yeah, single that, that but, single line could be interpreted in so many ways that you could you could probably talk your way around paradoxes because of that single yeah line you of could except for that she still experiences everything she does to get to the point that she has a photo that he has later on in the future and it's you're like, right Listen. not a possible future it fucking happened you have the photo like it, it doesn't make any sense but here's the thing I don't care. That's well, I, I will say this for the Terminator. The Terminator is so fun that most of the, and it's Terminator 2 that first led me down this path that made me. That's hate. the one that started your, your that thing started with time travel. Because Great. at the Can't end wait of for Terminator 2, when we get there, <laughs> that's the one that like broke me for the first time. Where no, I was I'm, like, I'm really looking forward any to any fucking sense. But time travel is just, it's tough. And, uh, you know. Star Trek gets it right a little bit because they tend to uh, you travel back in the past. You just create like a splintered timeline or there's like Marvel multiverse. So it's like, oh, yeah, now you can have the Chris Pine Kirk movies. And that's not the same timeline as the William Shatner Kirk. Movie. Why does he look different? Well, you're that's you look over that part. <laughs> He's still the same guy. Okay. You, you, you get over that part. He's, it's a different actor playing. Why does James Bond look different? Uh, it's uh, there David Bond a, is there, a whole different thing. It was uh, something with the GMOs and the, in the, in the food. And that's, you know, yeah. James Bond is a code name and every James Bond is actually a different person. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's the, that's the rumor going around. Yep. So um, <laughs> anyway, no, the time, no, don't, People don't want me to spend an hour on this. No, it doesn't fucking I think work. when we get to Terminator 2, I'm going to actually s- literally set a timer and say, you have 90 seconds to rant about this, Gary, and then we're done. <laughs> it doesn't make any goddamn sense. That's it doesn't. None it doesn't. of this movie but makes sense. Does that hurt your enjoyment of the movie? No, because it's so well made that you can, I feel like you can look over that stuff because who cares, honestly, in the long run, you're yeah. still telling a compelling story. Yeah. yeah it's it's still a fun movie it's a cool concept i like it it's a i i actually well i mean i've gone on record in the past and i don't i mean we'll see we're gonna watch terminator 2 eventually and uh i still uh i i think terminator is a five-star movie so like i yeah. uh I, I i just enjoy it and i think i enjoy it as much if not more than the second one which is the most popular yeah i totally. i'm a horror fan so as a horror fan, I really appreciate how scary Schwarzenegger actually is in this yeah. one. Like he's he's actually like legitimately like a cool horror villain as really well is. as being a sci-fi character. Like he's 
he's dead set on murdering Sarah Connor and does not stop. And he's, he's Michael Myers from the future. Yep. I'm glad, I'm kind of glad you brought that up about him. You know, the Terminator kind of being a horror character, Gary, because I think what the Terminator is doing in terms of genre overall is kind of unheard of uh, because it is easy to call it a sci-fi movie because there's the time travel element, the future war stuff makes it sci-fi, but it's also easy to call it an action movie because you know, it's got set pieces, it's got car chases, gunfights, etc. And and because Terminator 2 is undoubtedly a like capital A action movie. Oh yeah. Uh, but before the Terminator, can you think of another film that blended science fiction with this type of blunt force action? I don't think that I think this was one of the first movies to really do that. Now it's become a very common thing post-Terminator. Uh, you know, but I, that's all because of the success of the Terminator. I think uh, there were sci-fi movies, there were action movies before this, but there weren't ones that combined them in quite this way. I think uh, I think there were people who I think there were filmmakers who were who just didn't have the tech know-how, and I think that's what makes James Cameron, uh, Jimmy Cameron. Uh, I think that's what makes him, you know, head and shoulders above the rest is not only not only is he approaching it as an artist, but he is also approaching it with a very, very tech savvy and very detail oriented along with that, too. And it lends it lends credibility. So, I mean, especially with like a lot of Roger Corman stuff and lower level sci fi action type things, it's kind of like. They had big ideas and, you know, okay, we got the set piece. We've got, you know, some good actors or whatever, but it just, it just didn't hit. Well, right. but a lot of those, even the sci-fi always took, uh, took, took precedent where they were, yeah. you know, people or were shooting the, or, or the people were shooting. Did. Yeah. yeah. It was one, it was of, the one other. of the other. Like, it was, uh, people were shooting lasers. They weren't, it wasn't a sci-fi movie that where people were shooting shotguns like in this, right. like this is very unique. Uh, again, it's become common since then, but this was kind of a blend of those genres that hadn't really existed before. Mm. But if we're also talking about Terminator in terms of genre, this is going to what Gary was saying. I think this is a horror movie as much as it is a sci-fi and as much as it is an action film. I think this is structured very much like a horror movie. The most obvious inspiration is Michael Myers for the Terminator himself uh, from John Carpenter's original Halloween. The Terminator is a relentless, unfeeling killing machine. Uh, if, if Michael Myers is inhumanity is what makes him so terrifying. You could say the same thing about the Terminator. I think He's about things like uh, m- movies like uh, jaws or uh, even uh, gosh, I don't know. Like, uh, I mean, it, more recently, like it follows or something like the terrifying thing is this thing that just keeps coming and it never stops following you. Yeah, it never that's stops all it knows. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what the Terminator is. And I mean, the Terminator he, does that. I mean, hell, Sarah Connor is the final girl in this. She is the final girl who who the Terminator even gets his like comeback scene at the end. Like it's so common in slasher movies, you know, only he comes back as an a metal skeleton but yeah. it's his comeback scene and then but, but if, you were, gets, if you if you can insert yourself into the situation i mean the thing will not stop it'll never stop yeah. until you blow it up until it literally is nothing it will keep trying to kill you it will that's pretty scary <laughs> yeah that's even if you if it's like it's one half of itself like it's been blown in half it will still keep crawling towards yeah. you to try to murder you yeah until like it is nothing like it's literally not there anymore yeah, yeah. so i mean i think and and this and i am certainly not the first person to have this thought but i definitely think that the terminator qualifies as a horror film the first one 
does. Oh yeah. Well, and and yeah, I wanted absolutely. to bring this up too because uh, our friend uh, Jack Odinson, who is a, a regular listener, longtime listener, um, he even wrote me like before this one. Uh, he he sent me a message and uh, he was excited for us to cover this movie again because the Terminator is one of his favorite films. He was also he he started the conversation talked about how I had never seen Titanic and he said that. Uh, uh, quote, I too have been avoiding Titanic. Maybe I will watch it before your episode on it. Only if I could do it for free, though. But I am excited to hear you guys talk about The Terminator, one of my all-time favorite movies again. Many people shit on every Terminator movie that came after T2, but for me, The Terminator is the best of them all. So because of it, I love them all, including the comics and the TV series, even though they don't hold up to part one. Arnold in the first film is the most frightening Terminator in the entire franchise. That movie is the darkest, most serious of the films. There is no camp, no comedic one-liners. Nothing about it is family-friendly. My daughter was little. I let her watch T2, but not the original Terminator for a long time. The T-1000 is a badass, but he is not the thing of nightmares like the T-800 yeah. uh, from the original film. I agree with him. Like, I, And he's right that the... There, there is no real humor in this. Very, very little, at least. Uh, maybe a little bit towards the beginning. The "I'll be back" line is funny if you know what's coming. But on the first viewing, you don't know that he's about to drive a car into the police station, which I love that sequence, by the way. But you don't know that. Now, second time you see it, he says, I'll be back. That's funny because, you know, he's going to be back with an entire car coming through the window. Uh, yeah. So that, that works in retrospect, <laughs> which James Cameron actually designed the scene that way so that people would find that funny on their second viewing which is pretty fun uh but he's right like there you know i and i adore terminator 2 uh, one of my favorite movies of all time but it definitely has a lot more one-liners a lot more levity to it this terminator is terrifying he is a monster and they even make him look monstrous not just with the like you know the damage on his face but when he first is, flies off the car, when he's holding onto the car and flies off, his hair gets burned away and his eyebrows are gone. His <laughs> eyebrows are gone, which makes it even more like really Michael scary. Myers. Yes, he, it makes yeah. it more scary looking, which I think this is probably a good time to get into our further viewing segment because I think John Carpenter's Halloween would actually make a pretty great double feature with the Terminator. Uh, <laughs> right. But what do you guys think would make a good companion to this one? Uh, well, Gary actually just mentioned it a second ago, Jaws. Um, I, I love the idea of, it's i mean it's an animal so it's not targeting them but they're the only ones out there on the boat now, tell that to jaws too uh, right 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 <laughs> where it is very much targeting them um but i i like the idea of the you know the unstoppable killing machine uh and yeah my my initial thought went to jaws it's we i think you f- end up feeling for the characters in jaws a little bit more i think we see a little more of their humanity I, I like the you know because terminator largely takes place at night jaws largely in the day they're both i they are both to me summer movies and mm-hmm. i just yeah that that would be my not a bad double. choice I, I would go jaws then terminator cool yeah gary uh, well, I, I kind of said, you know, like you, you mentioned Halloween and it follows and like yeah. that kind of thing It follows like, is a fun one. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good idea. Yeah. Just the vibe of it. Uh, yeah. Just what, what Friday is scary the 13th? about it? Yeah. And Friday the 13th. Yeah. Terminator. Yeah. Arnold fucking Jason is Jason I want to see, I want to see Terminator versus Jason Voorhees. I want to watch that movie. <laughs> that would <laughs> sounds great. Actually. <laughs> I, I bet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, 
there, there's other movies that like as far as the feel of the would probably work i mean I, as much as i hate it and uh you know i don't want to bring it up just for the obvious reasons <laughs> but like looper uh feels like it could fit with <laughs> with the terminator i like, love looper yeah <laughs> no yeah. i don't i don't hate looper i just uh, the time travel shit for the I same mean, reason your stupid time travel hang up <laughs> <laughs> it's um, a great movie though it's a really great movie movie like movies like feel wise that like i get like i mean I, this sounds crazy but like the guest i even feel like like somebody suggested yeah. that to me so i put a thing out on twitter yesterday saying that i was looking for uh some like terminator ripoff movies which i was really looking for stuff that was, came out very close to the time of Terminator's release, but somebody mentioned the guest and I was like, you're right. Like the guest, like he is the t- fucking Terminator in that movie. Like he really yeah. is. It's just like, it's a little, it's a little different. I mean, the story obviously, but like, I mean, the guy's just like this fucking badass yeah. military experiment, basically. Like it's a, uh, it's kind of wicked it's a um, great movie. Yeah, vibe wise, I mean, you could get it from, I mean, like, uh, I think I mentioned Blade Runner earlier. Like, I guess you could get, get it sure. from there and stuff like that but yeah I, I'd, I'd go like it follows or halloween or the guest or something yeah i like i like those choices uh i'm gonna get a little weird with my further viewing picks i mean obviously you could always do terminator 2 as your as your follow-up Wait, there's yeah. a sequel <laughs> <laughs> but i th- do think you could you could do terminator 2 and then of course you could follow uh continue on that journey that swiftly goes downhill through the rest of the sequels uh but i want to talk about those terminator ripoffs that i just mentioned um because we, we already talked a little bit about how roger corman's company was producing films that were designed to capitalize on the popularity of the blockbusters at the time you know you had star wars and alien the roger corman versions uh even piranha what you mentioned that was a jaws cash in right but the Terminator, after it was success, had its own fair share of ripoffs, a lot, more than almost any other movie, honestly, there, there probably are, uh, some of which became pretty popular, like Universal Soldier and stuff like that. But the ones I'm ta- I want to talk about are, uh, there's two specifically. One is called Terminator 2 Shocking Dark. It was directed by Bruno Mattei, an Italian director who made a career out of doing ripoffs. He actually did his own Jaws ripoff called Cruel Jaws. Uh, which is absolutely incredible. If you've not seen Cruel Jaws, I think it's on Amazon Prime. Go watch it. It is ridiculous. Uh, Shocking Dark. It, it was released as Terminator 2 Shocking Dark. Now, if you look it up, it's usually just called Shocking Dark, uh, probably because you know Amazon, who is host, you know, has it streaming, doesn't want to get sued. <laughs> but it's, it was released originally in Italy as Terminator 2 Shock, uh, colon, Shocking Dark. It came out in 1990, a year before Terminator 2, the legit Terminator 2 came out, because Bruno Mattei knew that James Cameron was working on it and rushed it into production to beat the real T2 into theaters, <laughs> which I, I love. And it's it is it's not a good movie. <laughs> None of his movies are, but it is incredibly entertaining. And it's honestly more of an Aliens ripoff than a Terminator ripoff. It's about a group of like soldiers in a post-apocalyptic Venice uh, who are, and there are these creatures that they're having to hunt. It's very much aliens until the end when there, you know, there's the aliens, uh, you know, cyborg reveal like Bishop, you know, and aliens spoiler Mm -hmm. alert, I guess. Uh, But there's a person who ends up being, like a reveal like that, but they're essentially a Terminator. <laughs> so it becomes a Terminator movie in the last half an hour. And it is, I watched it yesterday and I was texting Gary about it while I was watching it. I'm sorry for bugging you, Gary. I, I was 
enjoying myself. <laughs> I was like, you got to watch this fucking movie, man. It's, it's incredible, but it is super fun. And another one that I, I had a double feature of Terminator ripoffs last night. The other one is a little harder to find. I had to watch it on archive.org, <laughs> the, the internet archive website, and like cast it to my television. Uh, but it's an Indonesian film released in 1988 called Lady Terminator. And I want so badly for like vinegar syndrome or somebody to do a proper like Blu-ray or 4K of this movie because it looks incredible. Visually, it is really great. It is one of the wildest, most crowd-pleasing things that I've watched in a long time where I'm like, this would slay with a group of people who like knew what they were getting into as far as this is going to be a weird Terminator cash-in movie. Uh, Basically, (laughs) these Indonesian movies, there were a lot of like genre movies coming out around this time. And they would often incorporate Indonesian folklore and stuff into them. This movie has this this prelude where a sorceress of some type, she like curses, she gets she gets scorned by a man and curses his like great granddaughter, right? So then we cut to present day. The great granddaughter is an anthropologist. She's on the dig. She gets uh, possessed by uh, what appears to be a snake that crawls up her pussy. <laughs> Like Jason goes to hell. Yeah. And then she becomes the lady Terminator. Now she's not a robot. She's a possessed woman, but she acts like the Terminator. Mm. She wears a leather jacket and she is on a mission to kill this woman uh, who is no, I'm sorry. I said the I said the great granddaughter was the one getting possessed. It's another lady getting possessed. She's hunting the great granddaughter, right? Ah. Which is the Sarah Connor character. There's a but it like blatantly rips off specific scenes from Terminator. There's a police station assault. There's a scene in a dance club where they actually, you know, the scene in the dance club in the Terminator where Terminator gets shot and they have a close up on his hand. You see his fingers move and that's how you know he's still alive. Yeah, uh, they have that exact shot. The the Kyle Reese character says, come with me if you want to live uh, They're They're like it is blatantly ripping off the Terminator in certain scenes and even dialogue. But it is incredible. <laughs> it is Like if you love like a bad I don't even want to call it so good it's bad. I think it's legitimately very enjoyable. It's a really fun movie. I, I hate that it's so hard to find, but I think either one of those would be really fun. I think the two of those together made a great double feature. Uh, so watch both of them if you want. Uh, there's also one that I found out about that I haven't watched yet, but uh, there's one called Terminator 91. And it is a shot for shot remake of the Terminator made by teenagers with a camcorder, similar to the Raiders of the Lost Ark one. Uh, oh, I don't know if wow. you guys have, have you seen the documentary Raiders about, uh, yeah, the, yeah. about the kids who made the shot by shot Raiders of the Lost Ark remake. There's a Terminator shot by shot remake that was made around the same time. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've seen clips from it, but I haven't found the whole thing yet. But yeah, uh, just Terminator knockoffs are fun. I don't know. But Lady Terminator and Shocking Dark are both well worth the effort to seek them out. I think I'm interested. I want to <laughs> yeah. see this. I've always wanted to watch Cruel Jaws too, and I just never have. But. It's on. It's on Amazon Prime right now. Uh, so you could, you could have a little double feature, little Bruno Mattei double feature. <laughs> sure, that's so that's my further viewing. Anyway, uh, it's it's just they're fun. They're so much fun. Uh, clearly made by people. At least Lady Terminator was clearly made by someone who has an actual affinity for the original Terminator. You know, so. When the Terminator came out, uh, one of the people who saw the film on its original release was Harlan Ellison. Uh, Gary, I think you brought him up a little bit earlier. Harlan Ellison, 
very famous sci-fi writer, famously, what's the word, cantankerous? <laughs> I yeah. think that's a good word for Harlan Ellison. That's, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> and he, his reaction for the Terminator, he said, I love the movie, was just blown away by it. This is a quote. I love the movie, was just blown away by it. I walked out of the theater, went home and called my lawyer. <laughs> so Ellison, <laughs> Harlan Ellison alleged that the Terminator script took ideas from two episodes of the TV show, The Outer Limits, that he had written. The episodes were called Soldier and Demon with a Glass Hand. You can see a little bit where he's coming from. Soldier begins with two mysterious warriors from the future materializing in the present. And then the mechanical hand uh, of Demon in a Glass Hand bears some resemblance to the Terminator robot's hand, right? But that's about where the similarities end. The story-wise, if you watch these, there's nothing in, in Ellison's writing that resembles the Terminator story at all. And like how many other hundreds of sci-fi stories have included time travel and future warfare right i think he was just looking for some cash i don't know or looking to get his name in the press Uh, harlan ellison he's a great writer but he's he not a not a pleasant man (laughs) so he sued them he sued them for this and instead of waging like a costly lawsuit or countersuit orion settled with ellison out of court I don't know for how much, but they settled out of court and future prints of the Terminator actually in the credits have a credit that acknowledged him that says like inspired by or something along those lines. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but yeah, yeah. It's, he's definitely in the credits. Yeah. Cause I saw that and was just like, I, cause I mean, I know him from writing city on the edge of forever, the yeah. very famous star Trek episode. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I was kind of floored by that. And because uh, the the print that I saw had his name in it. And I was like, really? Yeah. But <laughs> I think every print that you can find now is going to have it other than yeah. that first run. So here's what Cameron had to say about this development with Harlan Ellison. He says, is a quote. It was a nuisance suit that could have easily been fought. I expected Hemdale and Orion to fight for my rights, but they abandoned me. The insurance company told me I didn't. if I didn't agree to the settlement, they would have come after me personally for the damages if they lost the suit. Having no money at the time, I had no choice but to agree with the settlement. Of course, there was a gag order as well, so I couldn't tell this story, but now I frankly don't care. It's the truth. Harlan Ellison is a parasite who can kiss my ass. Nice. <laughs> so not mincing words, that James Cameron. <laughs> I love that. This is from uh 1984 movie review, James Cameron interviewed by David Shute, C-H-U-T-E. But they ask him about uh what he wanted to get out of this. Uh, the question is, is people said of Alien when it first came out, and it's also true of Outland and Blade Runner and Terminator, that it presented the future in a very grim light because that's what people find plausible now the future won't be better than the present it's going to all be the worst aspects of the present intensified the current audience seems to take that notion for granted james cameron said it's depressing when you watch uh interviews with high school kids the day after the movie the day after and see that they've come to just accept the inevitability of nuclear war and the terminator the fact of nuclear war is thrown away with the complete understanding that people just buy it. Uh, It's part of the fabric of the story. On the other hand, it tried to say that you take responsibility for your own life and for the life of society. The Terminator looks like death. And if you want to read into it, it is a death image. Linda Hamilton's character faces that image of death or fate and survives. 
all that has resonance, I hope, with the dark, premonitory character of Reese's, Reese's future flashbacks, as I call them, and with the final image of driving off into a storm, is that it is fate versus will. And so, anyway, that's a, I wanted to get that out there, because uh, there, there is the future, like, I, I think Terminator gets lumped in with, like, nuclear wars and inevitability, like, this is the future, blah, blah, blah. He's just saying, like, uh, we just accepted that there is a future where shit happens and there's robots running things and no it's just about uh death coming for you and linda hamilton looks it in the face and survives and like keeps moving and it's like fate versus will i like that i like that todd did you like the terminator i did like the terminator i uh there were i mean if i had to get picky about it there were a couple of shots like especially the driving shots where you can tell they sped up the the film speed a little bit and then i was i that sort of took me out of it a little uh just a little bit and but other than that i think the the concept is so great and really other than a few style things from the 80s it's kind of timeless Mm -hmm. um you know there's not a whole lot of things that are specific to 1984 other than linda hamilton's uh mullet uh but yeah i i think this is really great and it was my first viewing and i'm i'm really happy oh fuck i fucking forgot about that yeah yeah this is my first time <laughs> watching it uh, oh my god that's wild todd yeah <laughs> yeah I, I totally forgot you told us that you had never seen this before yeah same uh, yeah. i was that's just wild. asking that and i totally forgot how is this the first time you've seen the terminate it's just one of those ones that slipped by me you know um so it was during post-production on The Terminator that Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd's relationship evolved from a professional one to a romantic one. Now, I mentioned he was married. I'm not sure exactly when that marriage dissolved, uh, but at some point that marriage dissolved and he started a romantic relationship with Gail Ann Hurd. And it seemed like the two were made for each other. They were both kind of adrenaline junkies. They would race each other down the LA freeways to meetings. He'd, he'd bought a Porsche with the money that he'd made off of the Terminator. You know, she had a sports car and they would race each other to meetings. Uh, they, <laughs> they, uh, their date activities, including they would like go out to the desert and shoot AK 47s at firing ranges. They would ride horses. They'd go scuba diving. You know, they were both like, they were they were kind of two peas in a pod and they ended up getting married in 1985 mm. the terminator of course we we, we all know uh, would spawn a franchise that would include five sequels uh so far uh, a tv show which i happen to really enjoy the sarah connor chronicles very it was really good very <laughs> underrated it's really yeah. good uh, a theme park ride uh if you remember terminator uh, t2 and 3d which was oh, the yeah. universal studios back in the 90s yeah. Yeah. Uh, not to mention countless video games comic books novels toys everything that you can put the terminator face on is, is, has been out there uh it is i think to this day arnold schwarzenegger's most iconic role uh although i think that might be more due to terminator 2 even more so than this one uh but i would say that I mean, when he became the governor, they called him the governator, right? Like, <laughs> right. like he will always be known as the Terminator. But this is the movie that made him a star. You know, he, I mentioned this before, but he'd already been a, you know, famous, but Terminator turned him into something more than human almost. You know, he became like an icon, like he is what one of the most famous people who has ever lived. Uh, He would spend the next decade or so after the Terminator playing characters who were fundamentally unreal, even when they were technically supposed to be human, like the character in Commando, which came out a couple years after this. Uh, He technically is human in that, but he he 
basically is the Terminator and that he's just a good yeah. guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the years following the Terminator, he became the biggest movie star on the planet. And it all started with a little $6 million B movie that nobody really had any faith in, including Arnold himself. <laughs> uh, but I also think that Linda Hamilton deserves just as much credit for the Terminator success as Schwarzenegger does in the same way that we mentioned Halloween. I think that movie was successful largely because of Jamie Lee Curtis mm, yeah. because she anchors the film and realism. Linda Hamilton anchors the film and realism. She gives it a heart. Uh, she's the audience surrogate, the ordinary person that's dropped into a crazy situation and she's forced to adapt to survive. And throughout the film, we see her toughen up. You know, uh, we, I, I mentioned this when, when we talked about her casting, but she is by the end of the film, she's like a certified badass. you know, when she destroys the Terminator uh, she starts off as just a flustered waitress who's going out on a date with her, her girlfriend. And by the end, she's a badass. And it makes it so that when she, we see her as the sort of muscular, sinewy, mentally disturbed killing machine in Terminator 2, it's not really that jarring. You know, you, you could believe that the person she becomes at the end of Terminator could be the Sarah Connor we see in Terminator 2. Like the Jamie Lee Curtis... Uh... Uh, Laurie Strode from uh, 2018's Halloween. Right, like, exactly. She's just a badass. Yeah. Like she's exactly. just a traumatized, yep. fucked up lady who will kill you. Yep. Uh, no, no. I, I think all that's true. Um, it's one of those situations where it's like, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I can't think of a better example than this. Than I'm, so I'm going to do it. But if you're talking about pro wrestling, like people talk about, like the WWF and Vince McMahon or Hulk Hogan, and it's like. Vince McMahon created the whole thing, right? Like it all exists because of Vince McMahon, but also it has a little more weight to it because of Hulk Hogan being Hulk Hogan. Right. And, yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's a little different, but you get my point. It's uh, the Terminator would be cool. And you could argue it would still be a successful thing uh, without Arnold Schwarzenegger, but Arnold Schwarzenegger brought something to it that uh, would not exist without Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, there's just, certain aspects of it that just wouldn't be the same yeah. if Arnold Schwarzenegger hadn't been in the position of being the star. I don't, I don't yeah. know that it would be as iconic as it is now. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know that it would. I, I think James Cameron's a, an excellent director, so it probably would have still been successful, but would it have been as successful without Arnold in that lead role? If it were say Lance Henriksen in that lead role, I don't think it would have. I think Arnold brought something that elevated it to a, a, another aspect. I think it was much like your, your wrestling analogy. It was the combination of their talents that made it what it is. You know, it's, it wasn't just one or just the other. It was either, either one of them are, are great, but bringing them together. And this is what made this the project that it became. Yeah. Yeah all the, the quotable stuff, the likenesses, the, the, the imagery from the thing is like, it's just, that's as much Arnold as it is anything Cameron did, which is, right. which is cool. You know, it's good. It launched James Cameron and he's going to go on to make plenty of more money doing other things. And so is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And, uh, and Cameron has no complaints. I mean, I, I definitely found uh, in the, the latter part of that last interview I was talking about, he says, uh, Terminator was in some ways, the ultimate experience for me. I got to conceive the idea, write the script, have a deal made, storyboard the major scenes, go about creating those images and casting and sets, locations, 
then film it and compare the finished shots to the storyboards and see a satisfyingly similar type of image. For me, it was a clean sweep. I got to do every single thing I wanted to do. Yeah. And of course, this would lead to a sequel that we all know and love. Uh, That would be a few years away at this point, though. Uh, After the success of The Terminator, Cameron had gone from kind of a B-movie nobody to Hollywood's golden boy all of a sudden, which put him in a unique position to choose his next film. He could choose. He probably could have chosen just about anything he wanted, but there was still that alien sequel that he'd been working on. Uh, And he was warned after the Terminator came out, he was kind of warned by Hollywood executives to not take that job. You don't need this now. This is going to be career suicide. If you immediately follow up your success with a sequel to someone else's film, because anything you do that's good on that film will just be linked to Ridley Scott. And if it's a bomb, that'll be blamed on you. That's what people were telling him. But Cameron, as we know, does whatever the fuck he wants to do. And he wanted to, he loved Ridley Scott's alien and he wanted to make the sequel. <laughs> that's he the, said, that's what I, it can't be enough that I created a whole franchise of shit. It's <laughs> I've also want to be in every single discussion about sequels that are better than the originals. I want to, <laughs> I want to be also considered in those conversations. I have I to be everywhere. I mean, I don't think aliens is better than the original. I'm just saying like when the conversation <laughs> comes up about sequels, that are better than the original or sequels that are as good as the original or yeah. any sequels of that, that are at least good that are at least in, in, in conversation. I mean, good. I don't either. I, I mean, I'm part of the rare breed that might think that the original Terminator is better than T2, but two of the movies that you'll hear come up in those conversations are T2 and aliens. Just wait till avatar, the something of water comes out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a whole other thing we're gonna have to dig in. You never know. On. Yeah, <laughs> but it's true. You yeah. never know. Uh, but the story of Aliens, which is the uh, the movie we'll be covering on our next episode, of course, sh- this it does once again show Cameron proving the establishment wrong. They told him not to take this gig. He did it, and he proved him wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but like we're gonna talk, say that on every episode but that's what we'll be talking about on our next episode uh, i really appreciate everyone listening to this extra long episode there was a lot to cover here uh not only on terminator but on james cameron's career and i think all that early stuff we talked about in this episode about his days with roger corman and working on piranha 2 uh, i think all that feeds into what he accomplished on the terminator so i think it's a very important part of his story for that very reason so we appreciate you all listening along for this long episode i don't appreciate you at all (laughs) (laughs) i don't mean that this is an extra long episode we could have split into two parts like we did with alien but you know you can you guys you guys got patience we believe that people will just you start and stop it yeah you don't have to you don't have to listen to it all in one go yeah (laughs) i haven't been yeah, I don't listen to any podcast that way. I, I haven't been listening to Justin talk all in one yeah. go here. I've just been like zoning in and out when I yeah, l- reading his own notes every now and then. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just like, I, I think this will fit here. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. He gets lucky. And Todd, he's been sleeping most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to continuing with this because it's there's so much there's so much in there that that Justin just unpacked, you know, history wise. And now I'm looking I'm looking forward to seeing the progression of uh, Jimmy Cameroon as he 
progresses through his career and what that means for later films. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to hate you if you keep calling him that this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, that, that, jo- that joke's already worn as welcome. Yep. But, it's going to happen. Just wait for it. <laughs> but but I will say, I just tried to judge you for not seeing the Terminator. And we're also going to hit on Titanic, which is arguably just as huge. And I've never seen it. So it's the um, highest grossing movie of all time, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> not arguably just as huge <laughs> uh, anyway i guess that's it for this episode uh, thanks again we'll be talking about aliens next time of course you can find all of our episodes at cinemashock.net uh, we just recently re, uh, kind of redesigned the website trying to make it a little more streamlined so it looks great Thanks, man. I tried. Yeah. <laughs> you can find that at cinemashock.net. You can find all our episodes plus links to Discord and our, our t-shirt shop and all that stuff. Uh, you can also find us at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we are also on YouTube, which Gary's been working on, uh, getting all of our episodes up on YouTube along with some bonus material and things like that up there. And uh, of course, subscribe like all that stuff please tell your friends if you have friends who are into movies who are specifically into like film history and genre film history and you think that they would be into the stories behind these movies like the making of the terminator just uh share this podcast with them share this episode with them or or look back in our archives and share another episode that you know that they're into that they might uh enjoy hearing about how it was made where can you guys be found on the internet for any of our listeners to follow well, you can check out more Star Trekky goodness on my podcast, the Computer Resume podcast, where we cover the entire franchise in chronological order. Um, and you can reach the show at Computer Resume on all of the socials. You can find the show pretty much anywhere you download podcasts. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond. I am at This Is Gary Horn on all of the things. Anywhere you can find that name it's probably me <laughs> <laughs> also tipw show also at the ti yeah at tipw show not the tipw show um, tipw show his wrestling no. podcast that's wrestling and i, I am stuff at- for the nwa sometimes at nwa not yeah. not, not the rap not the rap group not the rap group yeah the, although, uh, the, not for lack of trying yeah. although if they offered you the job Mm, I don't know. It feels like a uh, easy way to get canceled if I uh, keep saying I'm one of the NWA. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I am at Justin underscore Bishop. Again, find the show at Cinema Shock everywhere. Until next time. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Come with me if you want the keys. Uh, nice and simple. I like it. That was good. <laughs> I'm good. I am impressed. Thank good. you. <laughs> I was gonna big it. I was gonna do a whole big, long, drawn out one, but it was just like oh, this whole episode's long and drawn out. So that's yeah, good. yeah. Good choice. I like right before that though. You said I'm, I was gonna big it, so I wanted to see. <laughs> <laughs>